So the question becomes, how is China become the number two transplant country in the world? The place where every other country in the world gets its organs, not available to them. Where, where are these organs coming from? Every day there are a dozen of people that are executed or killed for organs in China. This is run by the state. This was murder and it came from the state. Yeah, state organs is, is certainly an accurate title for what happens to organ pillaging in China. It's done by the state, for the state, to the benefit of, of participants. And the, the, the secondary goal in it, not the primary goal, is to get rid of so-called enemies of the party, the Falun Gong petition. The numbers grew so quickly from 92 to 99, 70 to 100 million by the government's own estimates. values, truth, compassion, and forbearance were out of sync with those of the Communist Party. So as you know, Jiang Zemin, the president of the country, the head of the party, labeled it a cult and commenced a brutal persecution against its practitioners from mid-1999 to the present day. Falun Gong uh, values are quite real. And they're quite attractive. They actually represent the whole side of China which has been completely suppressed for many years. It's a side of China that most Westerners never see. official line uh, in terms of repression of Falun Gong of the party is bankrupt them uh, financially, ruin their reputations, destroy them physically. So that uh, the vilification is destroying their reputations, the organ transplants is uh, destroying them physically. There's the physical examinations, the blood testing, the organ examination, which have no other explanation than suitability for a transplant. That they had this endless supply of organs available on demand and the only limit was capacity. And so what you saw after 2001 was this huge building boom. New beds, new wings, new hospitals focused on transplants. And, and so that the volume is when the system's operating at capacity increased year by year. There are no human rights in China and the most outrageous example of no human rights in China is killing a peaceful community of Falun Gong practitioners and uh, and Uyghurs who are Muslims and Tibetan Buddhists and Christians, house Christians, for their organs, kidneys, livers and so on, and then selling the organs to wealthy Chinese or foreigners and the people are killed in the process. The belief that I have, <clears throat> I share with David Kilgore, that organ harvesting is widespread in China and it is restricted almost exclusively to Falun Gong practitioners. The Falun Gong are to the Chinese regime of today what the Jews were to the Nazis during the war. And we should all take note of this and look at China with new eyes. There's no evidence that Falun Gong is a cult of any sort. There's no evidence um, of, of political action to try and bring down the Chinese government. Um, there's no evidence of anything other than a, a deep desire to be left alone to practice um, their spiritual beliefs in peace and to not be locked up and murdered. David and I have met Falun Gong practitioners in probably 50 countries. Or even more, maybe. Okay. All walks of life, all uh, 
ages, all backgrounds, all education. I've found them to be a wonderful group of people. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I mean, uh, Falun Gong, uh, uh, first of all, it's not even an organization because it's a set of exercises with a spiritual foundation. Yeah. Everything's on the internet. You don't pay anything. You don't sign up to anything. You can start whenever you want. You can stop with it whenever you want. You don't even have to tell anybody you're doing it. You can, their principles are, are, are very simple and ethical. And, and I mean, all of that is true. So as you can see, we've got some lightweight content to start the evening out. <laughs> um, Mitchell is going to be getting into much more detail about this shortly. He's going to be coming and joining us in a few minutes. He's an investigative journalist who has dedicated 22 years to exposing the forced organ harvesting of the Falun Gong spiritual movement in China. With a resilient character and a determined mind, he has been working hard on the front line of a significant cause, which has been coined a new form of evil. Mitchell has been travelling the world in a crucial attempt to raise awareness about the forced organ harvesting of the Falun Gong, where hundreds of thousands of innocent practitioners have been rounded up, sent to over 2,000 state-mandated hospitals, the organs cut out of their bodies while alive, the organs then sold for massive amounts of profit, and the bodies then burned in crematories to conceal the evidence. His intention is to get the word out about the forced organ harvesting, as well as gain support across media outlets and channels about this new form of evil, especially against the innocent Falun Gong practitioners. And he calls to action kind-hearted human beings who will welcome an interesting discussion about this continuing crime and pressing topic. Our second guest is a buddy of Andrew's, Bill Edgar, and I'll let Andrew introduce what they're going to be talking about. He's one of my favourite ever guests um, that I've interviewed on On The Edge with Andrew Gold, my podcast and channel. He's been on twice now. He's got his own book. His name is Bill Edgar, The Coffin Confessor. And it's just the most remarkable person. I love these kinds of stories. So Bill had a very difficult upbringing himself and he was... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, you know, all sorts of things happened to him. I, I don't want to say the wrong word on YouTube, of course, but uh, it was a very, very difficult childhood. And because of that, he became obsessed with telling the truth and outing the truth and getting things out there, very much like this show that we do. Um, and he became a PI. This, I mean, he'll tell us more about this, I suppose. But what he does is he goes to people's funerals, he interrupts um, the speeches, the eulogies, and tells people the truth about what they did so the first time he did it for example was with this fella whose wife um whose best mate was trying to get it on with his wife so when he he was dying he approached the coffin confessor and said mate you know can you tell everyone what's happening at the funeral so he turns up and he goes uh, in his big australian accent like right i'm the coffin confessor sit the f down shut up i've got something the man in the coffin's got something to say and then he reads out a whole thing about it just completely, you know. And now he goes from funeral to funeral. He goes and to people's houses when they're dying to clear out like sex dungeons and stuff so no one else will see it. Just the most fascinating guy. And he has a really, you know, uh, a really sad upbringing that sort of explains it all. It's almost like his origin story as a superhero. So one of my favorite guests, he's coming on. And, and yeah, I can't wait for you guys to meet him too. And then our third guest of the evening, we're going to split that one, and he is a 32nd degree palm tickler, as in a Freemason. And he's also a Rosicrucian grade 7 adeptus exemptus. <laughs> and you're going to be taking him for the first 30 minutes on UFOs, I believe. 
Yeah, yeah, which I, which I love doing. You know, I've, I've always been into the UFO stuff, and I think you're into the that other stuff that he does uh, as well. So I think it's a really good split for us there. It's going to be nice. Second half is going to be on the Masonic side. Then over to Patreon, where I'm going to be back with George Webb speaking to us about a range of topics, including Mar-a-Lago, Biowarfare, his new book, Citizen Journalist. And then Ryan Graves is on with Andrew. Yeah, we've got Ryan Graves. It's going to be a really interesting one as well. Former Lieutenant US Navy and FA-18F pilot, who's, I don't know what all the letters mean, but Ryan will explain it to me. Uh, he served for a decade, including two deployments in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Inherent Resolve. He was the first active duty pilot to come forward publicly about regular sightings of UAPs, what we're calling them these days, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon and or Phenomena, and has been featured in 60 Minutes, the History Channel, and the New York Times, currently serving on all sorts of very impressive, prestigious communities and boards. Uh, and we'll be talking about what's really going on up there, as well as, you know, uh, safer commercial military air and space operations. It's going to be fascinating up in the skies. And then viewer favourite Norman Baker is back for his umpteenth yeah. time with the Queen's passing. He is in very high demand and he's kindly squeezed in some time for us this evening. don't know if you guys have mm -hmm. watched Russell Brand's videos on this, but, you know, he's pointed out that um, a lot of people have been arrested for saying certain things. So people have to tread very carefully with what they're saying on these subjects right now. And, yeah. of course, you know, we, we all show respect for the dead. But Norman Baker, he's going to be talking about the logistics of what happens when someone in the royal family dies, the common procedures, and the future of the monarchy under Charles III. And that's mm. going to be the last section of the of Patreon. Huge thank you to our Patreons. The link should be in the description box below this video if you want to join us there in our community when we cross over at 8, because there are certain things we can't speak about on this platform and we do get into the unmentionables when we move over to Patreon. And anything to say before we bring in Mitchell, Andrew? Um, I think you're a very handsome man. Um, <laughs> that's that's it, really. I, I'm looking forward to talking to Norman Baker. It always feels like a chat, and that's a skill that, that certain guests have. And yeah, um, have fun just now, and I'll see you in a bit. with the Say hello to the Coffin Confessor, will you, when, when we pop on in half an hour? Yeah, see you in half an hour, buddy. See ya. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey, Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. How's it going? Hi, Sean. Great to be with you. Thank you. And it was great to see you and Andrew there. And a wonderful, wonderful podcast you have and great uh, audience. So I'm actually very grateful to be here with you. Well, this topic now that you have brought to us, this is the stuff, you know, I've, I've heard the basics of what goes on over there, but this is going to get really deep and harrowing. But before we go there, are you okay just to tell the viewers a little bit about you and how you ended up investigating this subject matter? Absolutely. Well, I'll start and preface it by a quote. To fail to support what is good and to fail to expose what is evil, Sean, is unacceptable. And I am now close to the Chinese border and I have been investigating the forced organ harvesting on demand, state-sanctioned and state-endorsed, by the Chinese Communist Party, a reign of terror that has decimated 5,000 years of Chinese culture, has killed hundreds and thousands, tens of 
uh, millions, at least 100 million Falun Gong uh, uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Han Chinese over the, the reign of its terror over the whole, last 100 years. That's not hyperbole or conjecture. That is true fact. And I have been monitoring and investigating and exposing the Chinese Communist Party's forced life organ harvesting for 22 years. I come from a uh, South African background. I immigrated to the American, uh, the United States of America in the South. I was the first in my uh, family to become an American citizen, and now I'm close to the Chinese border, sure, and risking my life. It's very dangerous for me because I've been receiving a lot of death threats lately. I've had to go kind of uh, under the radar, but I had to come on your show because it is quite brilliant. I love what you're doing. I'm fully on board what you, uh, with the frequency that you emanate to your audience, and I'm just grateful to be here to share a little bit about what we've, what we've been doing for the last 23 years. Well, we salute your bravery, and we appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you, Mitchell. So let's just go over some of the basics then. Many people perhaps have not heard of the Falun Gong. Who are they? Falun Gong is a spiritual movement. Um, it teaches uh, showing the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance, and it incorporates five exercises in meditation. Now, the Falun Gong became the largest spiritual movement in all of China between 1992, when it was first introduced by the founder, Mr. Li Hongzhou, who has been nominated for five Nobel Peace Prizes, received countless awards around the world for the health and benefits that Falun Gong emanates to the body, the mind, and the spirit. And one out of every 13 Chinese national citizens, Sean, by 1998 were practicing military uh, generals, uh, half of uh, upper class society, celebrities, CEOs. Uh, like I said, about 70 to 100 million people, estimates of the Chinese government themselves. And it just showed that the number of people practicing Falun Gong outnumbered the number of people in the Chinese Communist Party by 30 million people. The popularity just skyrocketed because of the incredible health benefits, the illnesses, injuries and ailments that were being treated from practicing Falun Gong, which is absolutely brilliant. And it, it emphasizes a character building, Sean, where a lot of cults or extremist groups or things like that force people to do uh, bad things and pay a lot of money. This is a spiritual movement, very similar to Tai Chi, yoga, uh, Qigong, and it encouraged people to focus on what matters, becoming a better person. But because it became the largest spiritual movement, it was completely outdoored by the CCP, demonized, vilified, and hundreds and thousands of people were then sent off to state-mandated hospitals, including the Uyghur Muslims, the house Christians and the Tibetans, their organs then just cut out of their bodies while alive and then sold for the highest bidder, fueling a multi-billion dollar business. This is absolutely horrific. Okay, so the organ harvesting I'd previously heard about was like the prisoners' organs, and I heard about the people would go there on medical... Uh, what's it called? Medical tourism is that how it's described to get the prisoners' organs? How how did this organ business start in the very first place? What's what's your understanding? Where did it come from? Well, there's 52 pieces of evidence. I see some of the some of your audience are talking about that this is a cult. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's no evidence. We must talk about evidence. We must talk about facts. Listen, I've been dedicated 23 years of my life. My colleagues who were testifying in front of the British Parliament the China Tribunal, and this all started, the evidence, 
to confirm the allegations of state-sanctioned short on demand, reducing waiting times for organs of kidneys, livers, hearts, pancreases to a matter of days. All were confirmed by David Kilgore and David Mattis in 2006 when they first confirmed 18 pieces of hard evidence beyond a reasonable doubt and irrefutable in fact and deed and on burden of proof. If anybody is in the room that is a lawyer and, a, and an attorney, you, you have to develop burden of proof to share the irrefutable evidence. Well, they came out, Esquire, Secretary of State, and a human rights attorney, a Jewish human rights attorney, and a Christian Secretary of State lawyer, David Kilgore, a Crown Prosecutor to the Canadian Parliament, confirmed that between 2001 and 2006, between 45,000 and 65,000 Falun Gong practitioners, innocent Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa practitioners, Sean, were harvested alive by the CCP in state-mandated hospitals, their organs cut out of their bodies while alive on a specified date, and sold and trafficked for, sorry about that, excuse me, I'm sorry. To use transported, transported. Tra transported, sorry, sorry about that. Transported, um, I get a little passionate, forgive me, sorry. Transported to different countries, medical associations, biotech firms, and rich foreign uh, buyers of these organs. And then Ethan Goodman came into the coalition and joined the coalition, and he wrote a book called The Slaughter 10 year investigation on the Uyghur Muslims and the Falun Gong. And then the China Tribunal that was conducted in 2018 and 2019, just after our coalition and testifying. Uh, and briefing in front of the British Parliament. So there's absolutely no doubt that this is going on and that these people have been vilified, demonized, marginalized by the Chinese communist regime and they have been slaughtered for their organs and it's irrefutable. And, it's, and it started around 2006, the evidence coming out, but it started as early as 1960s by the CCP. They actually conducted their first organ harvesting, but then it ramped up after the persecution and the banning of the spiritual movement, namely Falun Gong, in 1999. Yeah, I mean, this goes on all over the world. I remember when I was in Mexico and there was cases of um, tourists would just wake up the next day, they'd been drugged and an organ would be missing and they'd have to just live with the consequences of that. So, But what I'm curious about is, how did it go from a, a you know a, a, a business in China to what you've described is like industrial scale? I mean, this is what makes this story so hard hitting: is the number of people and the industrial scale and the amount of investment in the infrastructure to carry this out. How does it leap to that level of activity? The amount of people that were practicing uh, Falun Gong amplified to become the largest spiritual movement, 70 to 100 million vulnerable victims of persecution. And these organs were invested, these people were investigated after practicing Falun Gong, they made a comparison the Chinese government, Sean, the, the non-practitioners non, you know, non of Falun Gong and practitioners of Falun Gong practicing the exercises and they saw incredible health benefits, particularly with the organs, the metabolic processes, the mind, the psychological, the emotional realms of people just emanating incredible health. It became the life force of China and it was actually honored by the Chinese government at that time as the crime fighting uh, practice. The suicide rates were going down, people were living longer, feeling better, the productivity rates in the factories were increasing as well. However, to understand how far the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, 
could, could, could go to wipe out something and something and someone, it's crucial to understand that this is a reign of terror that conquered China in order to kill. So when the persecution started, Sean, in, two, in 1999, on July 22nd, 1999, they outlawed Falun Gong, demonized them in order to create a final solution campaign, just like the Jews with the, were slaughtered by the Nazis or the Hutu, Hutus were uh, slaughtered, the Rwandans or the Tutsis, like any genocide starts. But what happened with the Falun Gong, it was normalized in Chinese society. First demonized, the deluge of propaganda, day in and day out, vilifying these people. Then the secret police, the military, which is controlling the organ harvesting and Chinese trade of organ harvesting, started to round these people up, forcefully blood test them, and then send them to state-mandated hospitals. They, they, they created a Laogao system, which is between two to 200, 200 to 252 concentration camps and over between two to 3,000, 2,000 to 3,000 hospitals, according to the key witnesses of prison guards, county intelligence agencies, agents, doctors, lawyers, 50 fact witnesses, victims of persecution who were in the labor camps, they were blood tested, eye tested, and then you got the, uh, the, the, the plethora of, of, exec, of, of experts and uh, um, eyewitnesses, as I said, and investigators who I sat down with, David Kilgore, Ethan Goodman, uh, David Mattis, Anastasia Lynn, who was Miss World Canada, Dr. Enver Totti, who conducted a forced organ harvesting forced by the Chinese government on a prisoner of conscience. So they rounded up this large donor pool of victims, started to kill them for their organs and create a multi-billion dollar business. And if anyone would like to learn more about the reports, because they are in depth and we don't really have much time, they can always go to endtransplantabuse.org. Endtransplantabuse.org. These are independent investigative uh, journals, reports, academic papers, government uh, 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 um, uh, testimonies and reports. They're all there black and white confirming that this is going on irrefutably. Who is purchasing the organs well that that's that's an interesting question we have the medical associations we have the biotech firms and we have many many rich foreign buyers from the u.s we call them organ tourism on demand so this is state sanctioned this is not some kidney in the bathtub so we have had many buyers call into the hospitals to the doctors to the military uh, uh, directors and the executives, they're asking for Falun Gong organs, fresh Falun Gong organs. And we have them all on tape talking about, yes, no problem. It's quality assured. We can get them because they are the healthiest organs in the world. And so there was a, a buyer will come from, to say, the UK and say, I need a heart, I need a liver, I need a pancreas. On a specified date, they would fly into Shanghai for the first military hospital. And then the CCP will take a Falun Gong practitioner from the blood match, match the blood from the victim, the Falun Gong victim, to the uh, the um, uh, the buyer, take the, the 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 practitioner out, Falun Gong out of the camp, cut all the organs out, and then fly them to Shanghai, and then do the transplantation uh, surgery, which is the actual murder as well. So um, again. The, the only four, I'll tell you how, how, how widespread this is. Only four countries have banned organ tourism. That's Israel with their transplantation law in 2008, Sean, Taiwan, uh, uh, Spain, 
and Italy and hopefully uh, more people, Scotland and hopefully other, other countries. But the widespread organ trafficking, sorry, again, organ harvesting, organ transporting is so widespread because you can now get a organ on demand in China from a Falun Gong practitioner, whereas the waiting times were between four and eight years before for livers, hearts, pancreases, and kidneys, not to mention others. So they're making a billions of making billions of dollars off this uh, of this trade. So I hopefully I've, I've answered the question. Are you aware of the various prices for the various organs? Yes, I am, and I, and I actually got them right here for you. I wish I could show them on online for you, but um, this is the. The, the, the latest prices. And remember, the Chinese Communist Party had about 20 different websites going up uh, each, and you know, uh, promoting their organ harvesting business until we were exposing them. And then they took them down. They, they, their propaganda machine came out and said that they banned organ tourism, they've banned uh, uh, organ harvesting, and they only did it to 10,000 of their criminal uh, prisoners of, uh, in, in their prison system. But it doesn't, it doesn't add up. It truly doesn't add up because the amount of organs that have been tra have been transported are, are, are in are in the hundreds and thousands a year. The conservative estimates are between eighty to one hundred thousand uh, a year, according to the investigators that have actually done uh, the the work. Um, but let me share with you, uh, as you asked me, um, I got them right here. Sorry, God. Uh, sorry, um, uh, Sean. Let me, let me share with you. Here we go. Um, this is the um, I can't put it on screen, but for example, for lungs, one hundred fifty thousand to one hundred seventy thousand dollars each. A cornea, thirty thousand dollars. Kidneys, sixty-two thousand dollars. Pancreases, ninety-eight thousand to one hundred thirty thousand uh, dollars. Pancreas, a uh, liver is one hundred fifty thousand dollars. A heart, one hundred thirty thousand to one hundred sixty thousand. Now, in the report, the, the CCP is also selling the organs back to their own citizens, particularly liver because the liver cancer rates are huge in China, one of the largest in the world. So they are, they are selling their organs not only to, to foreign buyers, uh, but also to back to their own citizens on demand. So if someone from the West then wanted to go and engage in this activity and, and, and make a purchase like that, would they have to do it surreptitiously? No, they, all they have to do is just call the, 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 the doctors and the, uh, uh, the, the military hospitals and say, look, because we have the video, we have the, uh, the, um, the audio and the tape recordings and that you could ask for a Falun Gong organ. And I say, sure, we have plenty of them uh, on the, on the documentary, the award winning documentary from Kay Rubacek. Uh, hard to believe movie.com hard to believe if you look it up on YouTube you can just uh, watch it for free hard to believe they actually have a, um, a a taped recording of a doctor a buyer an investigative uh, a reporter disguised as a buyer calling into the hospital so it's just on demand so if you if people have heard that they can get fresh organs on demand by prisoners of conscience what well, I call them prisoners of or criminals but they're actually prisoners of conscience so it's that easy. It's on demand. And like I said, they had websites promoting the organ harvesting business, but they all took them down because they were scared of getting caught. And now, because the evidence is now being exposed and people like myself and others are risking our lives to expose this, they are cornered rats on a sinking ship, the CCP. 
The CCP is being exposed now on a large scale, not only on the organ harvesting, but the infiltration, the rigging of the elections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all now coming out. So, but, but, the, but the, the number one enemy of the CCP is the Falun Gong. And I honor the, the spiritual movement. You know, I'm a Judeo-Christian man. I have my own beliefs, but I have supported the spiritual movement because of their tenacity, because of their decades of courage, and because they have been the ones that have warned the world of this reign of terror, this demonic, evil, imposterous cult that has, that has hijacked China and has declared war on a spiritual movement that, that, that uh, for no reason other than to make money and fuel a multi-billion dollar business off. So the numbers you just quoted there, the heart, the liver, I mean, they're astronomical numbers. How are these transactions facilitated? Because I imagine, you know, if you're going to send that amount of money in advance of your operation, they would just pocket the money. Do you have to put some down and then when you've got the organ and it's this process has been completed, you, you pay the balance? How, how does it work, the transactions? Exactly. According to the investigators, a lot of it is done internally, like under the under the radar. Um, and a lot of also it's been cash based. I mean, sometimes you will uh, transfer. There are certain offshore transfers and, um, you know, it's run by the military. So the military have that kind of jurisdiction. Remember, you're dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. They're outside of international jurisdiction. It's a communist controlled society. It's a totalitarian state. So they own the banks, they own the systems. I'm living in a communist country, so I know this full well. Okay, they, you are controlled here. There is no outside interference of what you, and how you conduct your business in communist countries. So that's a very appealing way to receive money in the form of misdirected funds or offshore funds or um, we had offices here and we were disguised as a media company doing work to expose this. The CCP got word of this and sent their spies and their agents to try and harm us. We had to close down our business. So there are ways to disguise the transactions and the inflow and the input and the output of transactions, but they do truly get them um, through cash transactions, transferring, crypto payments, however you want to say, however you want to do it, there is a way because again, it's the military and the communist regime that is in charge. All right. So say I pay 150,000 US dollars for a heart to the Chinese military. Where does that money then go? That is pocketed by the, well, that is pocketed by the CCP because the CCP is state sanctioned it. They pay the doctors. The doctors are making a fortune. The the the, the, uh, the military is making a fortune. The CCP officials are making a fortune. The agents are making a fortune. Uh, those who are arranging the um, the, uh, the, the the transplantation of uh, the global transplantation are making a, uh, making a fortune, but particularly in the hands of the military and the Chinese Communist Party, they are the ones that are actually profiting off this multi-billion-dollar business, um, and. Yes, and uh, sorry. So you're saying there are international agents and brokers soliciting clients? Absolutely, it's a multi-billion-dollar business. Yes, so it is a prom to to promote the organ trafficking business and organ harvesting business. The Chinese Communist regime are using outside agents and distributors to do so as well. And um, you know, I can, uh, there are also names. 
Western politicians. This is a big business, Sean. This is a multi-billion dollar business. When you have a multi-billion dollar business, you have to have serious players involved in the distribution process. And when I was on Steve Bannon, the number one conservative platform of media in the United States, Steve Bannon, who's now just been arrested, okay? He pressed me for the number, for the names. He said, who are involved? Tell, tell me the names. And I couldn't tell the names. I was with Dr. Envitotti. But we all have the names, particularly on the Eastern side. If you go to upholdjustice.org, we have all the names of all the doctors, all the military officials, all the cadres that are involved their family names, their addresses, who they are, where they are, what they've been involved with, even the international doctors that are studying outside abroad that are involved, particularly Huang Jiefu, who was the Ministry of Health, health uh, of the VP to the Ministry of Health of the Chinese Communist Party, a liver surgeon who now sits on top of the World Health Organization and was involved with the Vatican as well. And that's another story in itself. But again, there are there are a lot of players involved. I can uh, uh, right now on the show share about this because my life's in danger, and I'm at risk. I am in communist. I'm on the close to the border of communist China, so I'm not here to play around with anybody, and I'm not here to blow smoke up anyone's nose. This is serious business, and this is all being exposed. And I do implore people to go to chinatribunal.com and endtransplantabuse.org to learn about this seriously. The serious skeptics out there, not the trolls, not the agents who, are, who, are, who, who have got no facts, no figures, and are looking like absolute clowns saying that the Falun Gong are CIA-backed. There's no evidence to that. This is ridiculous. These people have been slaughtered for their organs, killed to order, demonized, harassed, vilified, torn apart, their family businesses, their marriage licenses, their graduation certificates, their children, for God's sake. And I'm here risking my life to expose this. So, out of respect. We appreciate your passion. There's always um, controversy in the comments, so I, I wouldn't pay any attention to it. Okay. So, what are the international laws? Surely there's some kind of investigation into this. Is it, is it a United Nations issue? What, what kind of jurisdiction does this industrial slaughter and organ harvesting what what legal jurisdiction does this fall under under international law well that's unfortunately the problem is that the united nations have remained silent the world health organization has remained silent because of the mass murdering regime ccp's influence the ccp has just been elected director or executive uh, executive to the world health organization the united nations the, the mass murdering regime of the ccp controls at least four specialized units of the of the of the, of the united nations but however, we had we, we, we brought the, the investigators have brought it up to the governing bodies and they know full well, Sean, 25 years of this. They know, they all know, but they've said nothing. Very few of them have, have actually come out and shared. Um, the China Tribunal, headed by Jeffrey Nice QC, uh, he is he was the prosecuting, leading prosecuting attorney of Slobodan Milosevic, the Yugoslavian dictator, unanimously. Uh, concluded that forced organ harvesting is widespread in China and that it has been conducted particularly on Falun Gong practitioners and Uyghur Muslims. We also have the House of Representatives, the European Parliament, the House of Lords. They all know about this. They've passed resolution after resolution after resolution urging the Chinese Communist Party to stop this. But there's so much money involved that nothing has happened. However, as I said, the four, the four countries, Israel, the uh, uh, Taiwan, 
and uh, and Spain, and I hopefully and I think Italy also has come to the to the aid of banning organ tourism. I know that all, because of Jacob Levy, who is the director of the Tel Aviv Association Medical Association, he passed with the Sanhedrin and the Knesset the Transplantation Law of 2008. And this is what needs to be done in Canada. The UK has also passed laws, by the way, recently to, 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 to put on notice any company that is dealing with organ, or organ tourism or organ transplantation coming from China. So we're getting the word out there. But for 25 years now, the criminal journalist media, the multinational corporations, the governing bodies have remained silent because they are scared to confront China, as well as the massive bribes and payoffs and infiltration into these bodies to keep the world blinded from this atrocity. So we've got a thousand more people in the watching than when we first started. Huge thank you to everyone across all the platforms. Almost one and a half thousand across all the platforms. So what I think I should do is show the video to all these new people who've jumped on the live and then take questions. So if you've got a question for Mitchell, please put it in the chat wherever you're watching, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Ash will collate those and we'll, we'll get to them after we have watched the video clip. Here you go, people. Let's see. So the question becomes, how is China become the number two transplant country in the world? The place where every other country in the world gets its organs, not available to them. Where, where are these organs coming from? Every day there are a dozen of people that are executed or killed for organs in China. This is run by the state. This was murder and it came from the state. Yeah, state organs is, is certainly an accurate title for what happens to organ pillaging in China. It's done by the state for the state to the benefit of, of participants. And the, the, the secondary goal in it, if not the primary goal, is to get rid of so-called enemies of the party, the Falun Gong petition. The numbers grew so quickly from 92 to 99, 70 to 100 million by the government's own estimates. Its values, truth, compassion, and forbearance were out of sync with those of the Communist Party. So, as you know, Jiang Zemin, the president of the country, head of the party, labeled it a cult and commenced a brutal persecution against its practitioners from mid-1999 to the present day. Falun Gong uh, values are quite real, and they're quite attractive. They actually represent the whole side of China which has been completely suppressed for many years. It's a side of China that most Westerners never see. Official line. Uh, in terms of repression of Falun Gong, the party is bankrupt them uh, financially, ruin their reputations, destroy them physically. So that uh, the vilification is destroying their reputations, the organ transplants is uh, destroying them physically. There's the physical examinations, the, the blood uh, testing, the organ examination, which have no other explanation than suitability for uh, transplant. That they had this endless supply of organs available on demand, and the only limit was capacity. And so what you saw after 2001 was this huge building boom. New beds, new wings, new hospitals focused on transplants. And, and so that the volume is when the system's operating at capacity increased year by year. There are no human rights in China. And the most outrageous example of no human rights in China is killing 
a peaceful community of Falun Gong practitioners and uh, and Uyghurs who are Muslims and Tibetan Buddhists and Christians, house Christians, for their organs, kidneys, livers, and so on, and then selling the organs to wealthy Chinese or foreigners, and the people are killed in the process. The belief that I have, <clears throat> I share with David Kilgore, that organ harvesting is widespread in China, and it is restricted almost exclusively to Falun Gong practitioners. The Falun Gong art of the Chinese regime of today, what the Jews were to the Nazis during the war. And we should all take note of this and look at China with new eyes. There's no evidence that Falun Gong is a cult of any sort. There's no evidence um, of, of political action to try and bring down the Chinese government. Um, there's no evidence of anything other than a, a deep desire to be left alone to practice um, their spiritual beliefs in peace and to not be locked up and murdered. David and I have met Falun Gong practitioners in probably 50 countries. Or even more, maybe. Okay. All walks of life, all uh, ages, all backgrounds, all education. I've found them to be a wonderful group of people. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I mean, uh, Falun Gong, uh, uh, first of all, it's not even an organization because it's a set of exercises with a spiritual foundation. Yeah. Everything's on the internet. You don't pay anything. You don't sign up to anything. You can start whenever you want. You can stop with it whenever you want. You don't even have to tell anybody you're doing it. You can, their principles are. Are, are very uh, simple and ethical and, and I mean all of that is true all right so first question is from Zareth does Mitchell think this can actually be stopped we're trying we're doing our best but we're up we're up against a Goliath of a monstrosity I mean this is a mass murdering regime with the second largest military the second largest economy a population of 1.3 billion people have infiltrated into many government agencies and bodies, but we're doing what we can to expose this evil. And yes, they are now cornered rats on a sinking ship. The, 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 the exposure of this evil always comes to light, and we will not give up and we will not give in. I've been doing this for 23 years. I'm on the border of China as we speak right now. I've been, I've been talking to refugees, political asylees, people who have survived from these death camps, Falun Gong practitioners who were tortured and brutally persecuted and have seen uh, on account, you know, harvesting. They have, they, they, this is full testify, testimonies and witnesses being tested nonstop. Um, so this has to end and this has to stop. And I do believe it's going to sooner than later. We've got a couple of minutes. We've got a couple of minutes left and we've got loads of questions. So we're going to squeeze in as many as possible um, before Mitchell has to go. Nikki wants to know who are paying for the organs. Is it just rich elites governments? I know we touched on that earlier, but perhaps we need to go a bit deeper. Absolutely. It, I mean, look at look at the Rockefeller, uh, uh, eight, eight hearts. I mean, people are going to China, rich uh, foreign uh, buyers. You've got to have a lot of money uh, from the elites to the buyers, uh, uh, medical associations, from the uh, from the biotech firms, okay, the multinational corporations, people who can get their their their, um, their hands on organs, particularly DNA, uh, baby parts, they, they they will get that. This is who is buying them, and they are selling them back to their own people. And when when COVID hit, 
a lot of the infected CCP agents were also getting the transplantation organs from the Falun Gong practitioners while alive on a specified date. So you're saying that Big Pharma is accessing these organs to do what with? These big, these big uh, 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 multinational corporations in Big Pharma are using them because of the, the, the health benefits. And when, you, when you're using baby parts or body parts, you are using them for medical, biological weapons. You're using them for warfare. You're, you're using them for research. Um, there's a lot that can go into that. But this is who are buying them. But mainly the, the, the foreign buyers, because they want a kidney, they want a lung, the organ tourism rate are skyrocketing 40 to 50 percent because of the because of the reducing of waiting times. You know how hard it is to get an organ nowadays. So mainly foreign buyers that have problems with their organs are buying them. But this is on demand. So uh, that's why you have such a huge demand of these organs. But I can get into it even more so in the report, maybe a little later. I think because we've run out of time, Mitchell, would you be willing to come back on? Because there's so many questions pending and there's so much more to discuss. I'll have Ash get a hold of you after this and we would love you to return if, if you're up for that. I would love to and I will bring more. Uh, uh, we can go into more depth. Forgive me for using that the, 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 the T word. Forgive me. I was just very passionate. But um, don't, don't worry about that, Mitchell. Let, let the viewers know where they can find you and support you in, in this important mission. Absolutely. The two websites, if you would like to learn about Falun Gong, www.faluninfo.net, F-A-L-U-N-I-N-F-O, and endtransplantabuse.org, endtransplantabuse.org. Thank you, Sean. God bless you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for coming on, and you take care doing this occupation that is so dangerous as well. Cheers. Cheers. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to bring Andrew back on and we're going to bring Bloody Bill hell. in. And I've been Hello, watching Bill. some of Bill's stuff and it is absolutely fascinating. G'day, just guys. Get, How are we? Just, oh, huge thank you for spending some time with us, Bill. No, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you, you get up there and what I've been seeing, you know, the, the atmosphere just completely changes. You get up there, make your announcement... And it's, it's it's just so unexpected. It's it's mind blowing to watch what you do. Yeah, it's uh, it's out of the box, so to speak, isn't it? It definitely is. Yes. So yeah, I, was, Andrew... I was I was explaining before uh, that that Bill's one of my favourite ever guests. Been on on the Edge of Andrew Gold podcast twice now. I've made little clips of you everywhere. I just I just love it. And uh, you know you know he's, there's a movie being made and everything, Sean. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to see that as well. Bloody yeah. hell. I would say who is, who's in it, but Sean doesn't know any, you know. <laughs> you won't know unless it's Brad Pitt. So it's officially my break, my break time, guys. So I'm going to hand this over to Andrew and I'll be back shortly. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Sean. Get nice, out of mate. here. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers, Thank mate. Watch it, Bill. How's it going? Mate, I'm well. How are you doing, mate? Oh, really good, really good. I love to. I could talk to you all day, all night. I'm really excited to introduce you to all like Sean's uh, viewers here. Tell us, just give us a rundown of what you do, because like, there's no one who does what you do. No, apparently I'm the only person on the planet that uh, is invited to funerals by the deceased to crash the funerals on behalf of the deceased and tell those that were loved how much they were loved and those that were loved to hate to fuck off. <laughs> 
<laughs> so how did you first, I mean, I obviously know already, but tell me again, you know, how you first got into this. I started as a joke, mate. I, um, I told a dying man that I'd crash his funeral for him uh, as a joke, but he took me up on the offer. And um, after I did a bit of investigative work and seeing what he wanted done, I agreed. And uh, I attended the funeral as one of the mourners. I sat amongst uh, family and friends. And when his best mate was doing the eulogy, I um, stood up and interrupted the service and said, excuse me, my name's Bill Edgar. I am the coffin confessor. Sit down, shut up or fuck off. The man in the coffin's got something to say and this is what it is. Uh, and the thing that the guy, the guy in the coffin had to say, this was the fella who was dying and he thought that his best mate was trying it on with his wife. Yeah, he's on his deathbed. He, he was at home. Um, he had care at home, but he could see up the hallway and he could see his best mate visiting, but not visiting him, visiting his wife and patting her on the arse and, and trying to get on to her. And she wasn't taking the advances. She was a bit scared and intimidated. Um, so once I saw a bit of that on, on, you know, on my own, I thought, yeah, well, let's out him at the funeral. Why not? And uh, there was also three other people at the funeral that uh, Graham, my first client, said, uh, look, if my brother, his wife and their daughter at my funeral, can you ask them to leave? Because I haven't seen them in 30 years. They're vultures. Why are they there? They could have paid their respects you know, prior, but they didn't. Vultures because what, they're now turning up and they probably want to get in on the wheel or something like that? Oh, you know what? I've, I've learned of late. A lot of people turn up to funerals not uh, not for the person that's deceased, but for them. And it's not about them. It's about the deceased. And if you haven't seen the deceased in, you know, a few years and, and you really don't care about them, don't turn up at their bloody funeral. You know, just let them go. <laughs> yeah, that's a bloody good point. So, to, what, I mean, look, this was your first client. Were you a bit nervous before getting up? And so, You know, inter for most of us, interrupting a eulogy is pretty scary territory. Uh, at first, I, you know, the thought of doing it was scary as you know you know you're sitting there and you're thinking oh how can this be done um but then when you actually you know get to know your client and you get to and i do get to know them very well and very quickly i mean i get to know their secrets their desires their thoughts you know everything about them in such a short time and it's a beautiful moment i mean my funeral crashes aren't just you know revenge or you know, I've had an affair or something like that. They're good, bad, funny, and sad. So it's across the board, you know, but yeah. at the same time, confronting, yes, but at the same time, I'll, I'll just jump up and say what I have to say. Um, I put the letter back in the envelope. I put it on the coffin and I walk out. So I have no idea if the funeral continues. I, I got no idea. I just do what I do and I leave. And are you not, you know, you talk about how close you get, it's almost like a therapist role that you play with these people in their dying moments. Uh, do you get emotionally attached? And is that, is that, does that weigh on you? No, not at all. Look, I, I'm do it, there to do a job. I mean, obviously, you, you listen to their, their stories and, and their life. And, and it's sad that, uh, you know, they're surrounded by these vultures in the family and, and, there, of course, there's loved ones that love them to death and don't want them to go. And, and it's, you know, it, it can be emotional, but no, I separate that. It's not, uh, it's not me. I'm not the one going. Um, it's not my story. It's theirs. I'm just lending my voice. I'm the messenger. And if you're going to shoot the messenger, make sure you kill me. <laughs> Bloody hell. Because there, there, there could be people after you, surely. 
Oh, there, there probably is, but at the end of the day, you know what? I'm at a funeral and I'm telling the story of your loved one. And if you want to know what they've left unsaid, you'll sit there and you'll listen because, I mean, it is your loved one. If you don't, fuck off. You know, it's, it's yeah. really a case of it's their funeral, not yours. Okay, let them have their day. Wow. Do you ever go up without ever no, even knowing what you're going to be saying? Like if someone gives you an envelope that's not opened? No, I, look. I do have one of those envelopes, but that's the crime. See, if someone confesses to a crime to me, I have to report it. However, if I don't know what the crime is, they write it down, they post it to me. I don't open it till the actual funeral. So, you know, until then, I don't know what's in the envelope. It could be, it could be whatever it is. It could actually be, you know, confessing to a crime that may resolve, you know, in a family being, you know, finally put rest to peace or whatever it is, you know, but at the end of the day, no, I, I, I make sure that I need to know what's going on. Um, as far as the crime one goes, that's going to be a shock to me and everybody else. But, um, yeah. you know, as far as crashing a funeral or a viewing or a, a you know, a wake, I, I, I basically sit with my client, we record each other, you know, and then, you know, he writes it out, she writes it out and then signs it and put in an envelope. And then at the funeral, I get up and away I go. <laughs> Have you had any of those crime ones? Oh, minor crimes, nothing, uh, nothing major. Like I say, I do have an envelope here. Um, I can't open it. I won't open it. I want to open it. Absolutely. I mean, I want to know what it is for sure, but the guy's still alive. So I'm not going to do that. I mean, that just defeats the purpose of the coffin confessor, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, tell me about, um, I, I just love that story because it's got beauty in it as well about the bikers and, and this man, you had to talk about him at his funeral. Yeah, look, a bikey's funeral. I mean, I met this guy um, prior to his death, obviously, and uh, he was a big man, a uh, strong man. Um you know, and when he first told me he was gay, I I laughed because I said, yeah, you, you sure you want to say that as a joke? Because I thought he was joking, you know, and he says, why, you have a problem with gay people? And I said, no, not at all. I, I, I have some friends that are gay. So, I mean, you know, it's not, you know, not a problem. I just, you know, it's the way he came across. However, yeah. he, no one, you know, and I've got to say, those people that really knew the man and loved the man, they knew anyway. Okay, but okay. there was a crowd and there's particular crowd in the biking movement that didn't know and they didn't want to hear it. But at the end of the day, uh, a large part of the crowd said, you know, let's listen to what he has to say. If we like what he has to say, he can walk away. If not, we'll break his legs and throw him in the coffin on top of him. You know, so I mean, at the end of the day, I, I did what I did. Um, the funny part was, though, is that he did say to me, look, I want you to let the audience know that I'm gay. Um, bisexual more than gay. Uh, my lover is in the audience. You're not going to know who he is, and it's not Peter. And I'm going to say that because there are a few Peters that are going to attend the funeral, so they're all going to be looking at each other. So he sort of left a bit of a, a bit of a joke. It was definitely Peter. <laughs> it might have been. Oh god! No, I can um, tell you then... it wasn't because uh, two weeks later I actually got a call off the guy that was at the funeral, and uh, he he really <gasps> loved it, and he said to me, "You know what? You're going to do the same for my funeral." So that was cool. Oh, well, you got a gig. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully he's not dying anytime soon. Um, but yeah, and how, how does the, the fee come about? I suppose it's different each time that they're paying you to go and do this. Oh, Graham, my first client set the fee at $10,000. 
And I'm glad he did Australian. because it stopped people. Yeah, Australian. So it stopped people using my services for 400 bucks, 500 bucks, just for revenge or for you know a bit of fun. Um, so the $10,000 came in really handy for, for a setting of a price goal. However, since then, I've set the price now between two and $10,000 because, well, they don't need the money where they're going and I never get a complaint. But then again, <laughs> the two and 10000 is because travel, everything else. And it's now opened other doors where I'll go to viewings and I'll place items in coffins. Uh, so that's not worth $10,000. So I'll go between two and ten. You know, or I'll go to a viewing and I'll pinprick the body to make sure the person's dead because that's their request. They're petrified about being buried or cremated alive. You know, or I'll tend a home and I'll sweep the home of, you know, items that people don't want found by loved ones, you know, especially family and friends going into your home and find, finding sex, toys, drugs, guns, paraphernalia, whatever it is. Man, see, I to me it is worth ten thousand dollars to go and pin prick a dead body, but I I think I don't have the same resolve that you have. I look, you know, when a when a client says to you, you know, treat my body as a pin cushion, make sure I'm dead because I'm petrified of being cremated. You know, oh you do it. You know, it's just something yeah. that's done. And, and it's not like I go to the viewing in front of the family and I start stabbing the body. You know, I ask for a, you know a few minutes of private time, and um. Obviously, everything's recorded, so I can't be litigated or anything can happen to me. So, you know, it's got to be done properly, discreetly, and, um, of course, compassionately and, and you know, as, as good as I can do it. Is part of you, when you're pricking a body with a pin, is part of you thinking, I hope they wake up? Or is you, you just know, right, that person's definitely dead, but I'm doing it because I said I'll do it? Yeah, you know what? Sometimes you think, yeah, it'd be good if they woke up. Absolutely. And it's happened in the past where people, you know, that they've said that they're dead and then they wake up or whatever happens. But I mean, the process in Australia, I mean, they're probably embalmed anyway by now, you know, by the time they get to the coffin anyway. So they're dead. But um, yeah. my, my main thought, I guess, is even placing items in a coffin is what do I want? What do I want at my, my funeral? And, and do I want anything in the coffin? And, and I, you know, I keep thinking to myself, no, I don't. It's nothing I really want. You know, I don't even want a bloody coffin, to be honest with you. I'd rather just be cremated, thrown in the ocean, followed by a bottle of port. That's it for me. Yeah. But um, yeah. there are a lot of people out there that want different things. Like some people want to be stripped naked, turned upside down and write, kiss this on my ass. So when the family comes into the viewing, that's all they see, you know. But then you have the other people that'll say, you know what, I don't want to be buried the traditional way. I want to be buried vertically or upside down or I want to be buried in a glass coffin full of water. I mean, there's so many people that have different ideas. And you know what, every person on the planet has a story or a skeleton in the closet. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's never ending. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, I'll just say to people watching, do our, if you've got questions for Bill, just ask away on the side and I'll, I'll try and ask some of them out. Um, but some people get buried with a mobile phone or a cell phone, as Americans might say. Uh, I mean, that again, you, it's like the pinpricking, isn't it? You think, what if I wake up down there? Yeah, look, the mobile phone's the most common item I've placed in, in, in coffins. And if they stay there, they stay there. If they don't, they don't. Uh, in Australia, it's illegal to bury anything other than the body or cremate anything other than the body. I mean, that's because, you know, you've got batteries, fluids, stuff like that. Um, but I do place them in the coffin. So whether they're taken out afterwards or not, that's not my care or concern. What is, is I've done my job. 
Uh, it's a bit like the bikey's funeral where I placed his Harley Davidson on top of the coffin and it got buried. Whether that stayed there or not, I don't know. But the point is, is the job was done. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, mobile phones being the most common, I always thought it was because people thought they were going to wake up and you got your phone, you got your time, you got your communication, you got all this shit. But six foot under, you got fuck all. There's nothing. Yeah. There's, there's probably no there's signal. no internet. There's nothing, you know. Is there no signal? So I don't know. No, I don't even think there's a signal. And I've actually jumped into a, a grave uh, recently. Um, Why? I jumped into the grave. <laughs> well, I had to bury something in the grave before the coffin went down. Uh, the man didn't want his family to find his wealth, and that was buried under him. And oh whilst I was God. in there, going back to the mobile reception, no, there was no no reception down there. And it's not six foot either, because I'm six foot one, six foot two. And I'm telling you, when they say you're buried six foot under and you're standing in one of those graves and you're looking up, holy fuck, it's scary. And you're not six foot. It's like, you know, 10, 12 foot. No way. Oh, mm. Were you, were you worried you wouldn't get out? And so I'd, I'd suddenly be petrified, think I'm not going to get out, and people are going to start putting mud on top of me. No, I've no, no, no. Look, at the end of the day, it's not something you can just go and do at a, a cemetery. You have to actually have it organised, and you have to pay a few dollars, you know, to a couple of the boys that dig the graves, and you say, look, can you lower me down? Can you, you know? And and they'll do it, not a problem. There's no issue because I'm not doing anything, you know, illegal, so to speak. I might be burying something under the body that's going to be buried there, but that's their request. It's their funeral, and it's their plot. So why not? I suppose so. Yeah, and and so that I mean that Harley Davidson thing. You buried a motorcycle, but you you sort of can't admit to that, can you? Because as you were saying, it's not legal. Well, you know what? I can admit that a Harley Davidson was buried, you know, and it's probably not the only one. There's probably thousands or hundreds of thousands of items that are buried, you know. Uh, I'm not going to disclose which one, where, and, and who it was for, but at the end of the day, you know, I've seen items thrown in coffins as well. I mean, you know, it, it's just one of those things. Yeah, I, I make sure that I'm careful enough not to be litigated or anything happen yeah. to me. And that's why I have the contracts, the videos and everything else. Yeah. Got a question here from Logan Fisher. Have any of your customers changed your mind on how you want to be remembered or how you want your own funeral to go? I think you, you sort of touched on that before, but I might as well <clears> ask again. I look... What's changed my mind about doing this job over the last couple of years? And don't forget, we had COVID for two years, so not a lot happened. So, And I started this in 2018 was my first funeral. Um, and I've done nearly 50. So I've done quite a few. And that's in, you know, including home sweeps and everything else. But what's changed my mind is my perception of people is... Oh, it's just cut out for a second. Ugly. Oh, it cut, it cut, it cut out. It cut out there. Yeah. Um, when you, oh, I think you should be back now. When you said my perception of people, and then it cut out, and then you said ugly. <laughs> I'm wondering what you said in between. No, my perception of people is is a, there's a lot of ugly people in the world, and yeah. I, I really, I really like people's animals more than I like their people. That's <laughs> just me now. So it's not a case of um the funeral itself and what i want i guess i've always been that way that i don't want a funeral and if you don't want one don't have one 
um, have a dinner, have, have something else, have, organize the family and say, look, this is what I want and this is what I want. Because at the end of the day, it is what you want. And I think I've touched on this before with you, Andrew. One gentleman who died, he did not want a religious funeral. He wasn't religious. He hated everything to do about religion. He was abused by religion. And what did his mum and dad do? They set up a religious funeral for him. And he said to me, if, if there's a religious funeral, please interrupt and tell him to fuck off. I don't want a religious funeral. And when I did that, half his mates were like, yeah, we know what he's like. He didn't want this. And I'm like, well, why didn't you stand up? Why didn't you say something? It's your friend. You know, it's your loved one. And yet his mum and dad, they it's sort of thought about though. them and it wasn't. Yeah, go on. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's hard to it's stand up to someone's about... parents, <laughs> you know. Uh, no, you know what? If it's what the person wants, though, you know, and what they've requested, yeah. and then the parents go against that, you know, what type of relationship did he have with his parents? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You I've know, got a question from Agent, Agent Orange. Any revenge or payback stories? <laughs> yeah, look, um, there's a lady that's, uh, she is close to death. I, I haven't done this one yet. Um, I have to reveal that her husband, who is an abusive prick, a, a real prick of a man, um, I'm going to reveal that his children aren't his, they're his brothers, and that uh, the children actually know, which is good. She's told the children, so she's come clean and done that, but he doesn't know, and I guess that'll just be his, you know, her revenge on him. And he's, he's a prick of a man. He has been for, you know, 20 odd years in the relationship, very violent. And he deserves what he gets, you know. Jesus, that's going to be a big one. Can you, I mean, it's probably inappropriate to record them, isn't it? I sort of want to get you recording them. <laughs> yeah, I don't record them. I'm, other people have held their phone up while I'm doing it and they record what I'm saying or doing, you know. At the end of the day, it's not, you know, my client's gone. So I'm, I'm just doing a job and then I walk out. It's a mic drop for me. You know, I, I get paid to do yeah. a job. I do the job and I walk off. You know, I, I couldn't give a fuck about the people left behind. It's not, you know, and people say to me, oh, but they're grieving and they've lost a loved one. How can you do that? How can you be so insensitive? Well, you know what? It's, it's your loved one that's engaged me to go and do this. So if I'm insensitive, I'm only lending my voice and my actions on behalf of them. So you're saying that they're insensitive and they're pricks? You know, at the end of the day, mm. fuck off then. Don't come to the funeral. Well, you wouldn't do everything because there was one person who asked you to kill their dog <laughs> not going bludgeon their dog he, he wanted their dog uh yeah yeah put to death you know take it to a vet and have it put down it was an old dog and you know the, the elderly gentleman it was his love you know it was the only thing he had in life was this dog and he said can can the dog come with me and i said no nah. i said i can't do that um, the dog did die three months after he passed, but it was a it was a sad thing, you know. And again, mm. like I say, I'd rather be with people's animals than, than them. I'd rather see him go than his dog. That's just the way I am. I mean, you know, that's that's me. But yeah, yeah. I'm no, that's the, the, I'm the only same thing I wouldn't animals. do. Yeah, mm. uh, that's the only thing I wouldn't do. I mean, there was cases there, you know, in the past where people said, uh, "I want you to be my suicide note." And at first I thought, oh, fuck, you want me to be your suicide note? Like, you're going to take your life. Um, then people will say, oh, did you try to talk him out of it? Well, you know what? No. 
I don't talk, talk about it. They want to take their life, they take their life. That's their, their choice. And I'll tell you now, the person that takes their own life, you will never stop them. I don't give a fuck what's out there to help people and prevent it. It will not happen. It's going to happen because that's what they want and that's what they truly do. So, you know, let them do what mm -hmm. they want. But as far as a suicide note goes, I was sort of, you know, I don't know. I, I thought hard about it and then I thought, yeah, why not? That's what I do. I'm a coffin confessor. So if you've got something to say, I'll say it for you. And that's, you know, yeah, that's what I do. I would say I, I have read data um, and I think it was in a Malcolm Gladwell book that suggests that people do um, some some people you're right would just commit suicide anyway, um, and some people um, it's a circumstantial thing. They're at a particular bridge or a particular place in time, and if they're saved in that moment, then they won't do it. So um, just put, I would just want to put a spanner in the works for the next person who calls you. Oh yeah, I, look, that's that's probably. You know, uh, you know, that's fair in saying that. I mean, obviously, I mean, look, you know, I stood on top of a 25-story building, you know, when I was 13 years of age, you know, and, and I was ready to go, you know, and uh, it was one of those things that I was so close to the edge and I, I kept thinking, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump, and then I couldn't jump, nothing. I just couldn't jump. And then I thought, okay, well, I'll just lie on the platform on the balcony side and I'll just roll over. And I lay there, and mind you, I'm 13, right? I'd, I'd gone through seven years of sexual abuse, both at home and at school, and, and it was a horrific childhood. And I was ready just to plunge 25 floors down to the ground. And at 13 years of age, I'm looking down, and I'm watching a man, a woman, and two kids play tennis on the tennis court, like little dots playing down there. And I'm looking at them and crying because I wanted that family. That's what I wanted. And then for some reason, you know, I thought to myself, I'm going to end my life in front of these people. You know, there's people in the pool, there's people and there's kids running around, they're all having fun. No one cares about me. I didn't give a fuck. And then something stopped me, you know, and I just went, you know what? Yeah, I, I get where, you, where you're coming from. Something can trigger you to stop and just go, you know what? It's not worth it or I've got something else to do. And that's what happens. You did have a terrible, terrible upbringing, and it's all in your in your book, The Coffin Confessor. People can read about it, and you're um, you're suing the the school that you were you were in because there was so much abuse going on there. How, what's the latest on that? Uh, it's a mediation point at the moment, but um, you know what? It was never about the money ever about the money. My wife and I came from living in a tent with two kids to owning properties and doing what we do today, you know, and we do that through hard work and savings and, and over the years. I've got to say, it's never been about the money. The church made it about the money. The school made it about the money. The system made it about the money. They said, look, you know, we're not going to give you an apology. We're not going to accept it happened, but we're going to pay you out. Oh, fuck. That's, that's acceptance to me. That's saying that it happened. But you know what? Yeah. I want the apology. That's all you ever had to do was apologise and accept it and move on and do something and put things in place. But you never did. All you did was call yeah. me a liar. And now 30 years later, you're saying, oh, you know what? Maybe you didn't lie. Maybe it did happen. I mean, 133 other boys have come forward now because of Bill Edgar. You know, so maybe it's true. Well, fucking hope it's yes. true. And not only is it true, last week, the Southport School, otherwise known as TSS, has now taken action against the three men perpetrators that abused me. 
the school's taking action against them and they're saying yeah. oh you know what we're going to stand beside bill edgar and we're going to take out take against our own teachers because we believe what he says now you know, fuck off you're doing that because i'm suing you Oh my God! And this is a so it's another sort of Christian because we've done things on this before, sort of um, religious-owned schools, particularly. The, is it related? to... It's not Catholicism, is it? No, this is an Anglican school. Mm. Um, it, it's an Anglican school on the on the Gold Coast here in Australia. It's it's a very well-known school. It's a boys' school. It's a, you know I came from you know shit childhood, like you say, government housing. I won a five five-year scholarship to that school. Yeah, you know, at the age of 13, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, it's basically what happened to me. But I believe I was targeted, you know, I call the school the pedophile's playground and, and that's what it was. You know, I was just a, mm. I was just a toy. Mm. Oh, man. Well, do you think, um, do you think that that kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the history you had, I mean, it's like an origin story for a superhero, really. And then you go out and become the coffin confessor, the person who gets the truth out <laughs> the there. Do you think it's, <laughs> yeah, do you think it's related? Yeah. You know what? It's definitely related in a way because it gives me enough um, strength, determination, courage and to do what I do. I mean, my, my upbringing has been, you know, been, I guess, the focal point of my whole life to do what I do. And it's yeah. one of those things that, um, you know, I don't know. I've always stood up for the underdog or the person that can't, won't, or fears to do. You know, that's what I do. Is is I'm able to do that, and whilst I'm able to do that, I'll continue doing it. Um, yeah. You know what I do as far as crashing funerals, it's not for the faint of heart or those that fear, because it's it's quite daunting and it's very. Uh, you know, can you imagine at the moment? I mean, I I would have loved to be invited to the Queen's funeral. Can you imagine that? That'd be you just walk up, you'd stand up and you go, you know what? The, yeah, that's the queen in the coffin. Absolutely. Everybody's wondering. Yeah. No one's getting up to check to see if it is the queen in the coffin. It could be an empty fucking coffin. But no one ever <laughs> does that, you know. I will. Yeah. I'll walk up the middle. I'll have a look and I'll go, you know what? I'll have the bow peep and say, yeah, that's the queen, everyone. Yep, that's her. And this is what that's she's her. got to say. Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> she doesn't know me, unfortunately. No, yeah, but you know, true. And imagine the secrets as well. I was well talking about his son, actually. For, oh, right. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't. We're not allowed to even mention them because we get in trouble on YouTube. So let's let's tell the YouTube people you were talking about me. But uh, yeah, it was yeah, Andrew Gold. Bill, Bill, the coffin confessor. We're out of time now. Just tell us where where to sort of go and follow you and buy your stuff and all that. Oh, mate, everywhere. Just Google the coffin confessor, Bill Edgar. Or, you know, I'm, I'm out there. You, you can find me quite easily. I don't hide. I'm yeah. right in your face and I'll be there at your funeral if you want me. Not a problem. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bill. Absolute legend. Beautiful having you on. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Cheers, mate. We are with Atwood Unleashed 73. We've got George Webb back, who's going to be speaking to us about a number of topics, including Mar-a-Lago, biowarfare, and his new book, Citizen Journalist. Great to see you again, George. How's it going? It's, it's great to see you, Sean. Um, I made a trip and I saw your hometown there of Guilford. I've been all over Guilford now. And oh, uh, yeah. Basingstoke and all the little towns finding Christopher Steele's hometown and place in Farnham and then over in Horsley where he has his horse. So I've been all over your place. So it's really good to see you now after I've been in your stomping ground. Yeah, you came here, I think, when we were on, on tour up in the north, didn't you? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but but hopefully, you know, if you come back, we can coordinate something next time with more notice. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where I had a million things to cover, so it yeah. was great. Uh, but it was it was neat uh, seeing. I spent a lot of time in Southampton this time and Winchester, and uh, you remember Christopher Steele had uh, Orbis out your way where his hometown is, but also he had a partner down in Winchester where sort of the Royal Guards and Royal Fusiliers are and the Royal Rifles and all the Royal everything. So it's uh, it's good having that background now, talking to you now. Yeah, and for the viewers who didn't see your first part then, George, are you okay to just tell everybody a little bit about you and how you got on your mission? Sure. Uh, since I talked to you last, I, wrote, I rewrote a book called Citizen Journal, <laughs> And you're in here, Sean, just, oh. just warning you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll get to the Sean. Uh, Addy Ads wrote this with me, so it's a collaboration. And so he included his uh, feature about you. There's Sean Atwood in the back there, behind Jeffrey Prather, I think. So there's a short blurb about you, but it's about people who decided um, after seeing great corruption or whatever and dedicating their life to ending it like you did, like I did, like Eddie did, and all of us. And so how we all can be citizen journalists. And this is another book we wrote about a citizen journalist named Sibel Edmonds. Uh, she wears no yellow badge about vaccine badges in Florida. So that's just out in paperback. I'm getting all my plugs out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a, we got a third book. So Eddie's helping me read all, write all the books and adding all the footnotes and links and uh, uh, you know back matter, front matter, adding his writing. Um, but what we talked about last time was Ukrainian biolabs. The war is still raging, of course, um, and Putin is getting closer and closer to where we think the bioweapons are in Kramatorsk um, in this steel plant. They, they tend to use steel plants that have already underground tunnels uh, to keep this stuff uh, away from the satellites. Um, and I see nothing in the war that takes me away from anything we've researched so far. So... Um, and that's my electronic dog bark. <laughs> it's one of those nights where anything can happen. <laughs> all right, you so- need one of those electronic dogs for all those kids <laughs> pranking you. <laughs> We're going to start with Mar-a-Lago tonight then. Yeah, so I've camped out at Mar-a-Lago probably three weeks in a row uh, waiting for, the. you know, the you folks are aware of the, big Trump raid and it's on very tenuous grounds. Of course, our fourth amendment against search and seizure here on this side of the pond, fifth amendment due process, sixth amendment, uh, which is uh, a right to see your accusers, all of those violated. And um, uh, they seem to have expanded the search from the records to one of these locked storage areas to include now Trump's office, Trump 45 office, which is, not really what the previous letters talked about. And that allowed them to say, well, there's no door to uh, Melania's bedroom that's closed. So that means we can go in there. There's no door to Barron's bedroom. So that means we can go in there taking clothing. So you can do DNA sampling, um, taking Trump's tax records, taking his uh, personal um, medical records, uh, just kind of one of these vacuum Hoover uh, type searches. So what, you know, uh, being there, I was like, Hey, you got to fight back on this. You, you know, there's things you can do. Um, 
even even terrorists uh, get a, a special master if you invade an area that has executive privilege or what's known as a trinity client privilege. Um, and the blind sheik, the guy who planned the 1993 bombings, had a special master, uh, Gary Naftalis. So we were saying, hey, get the special master. So, so the Trump team kind of got flat-footed the first day when the uh, thing uh, indictment came down. But then they did respond finally two weeks later. And now we're fighting to see who the special master is. Uh, the DOJ proposed two people. Those are not the ones you want. Uh, and then Trump proposed two people. And one of them is not the one you want. He's the guy who did two Carter Page vices. You remember that with Christopher Steele. So we're really hoping this Paul Huck, who really knows what's going on in Florida, gets to be the, the special master to go over these documents. Because there's an argument to be made that Trump met with all of his attorneys there in that room, and that made the whole room attorney-client privilege, potentially. We don't know the answer yet. So the next big thing happening is tomorrow here in Atlanta, we're going to be going to the appeals court, and they might appeal this whole thing. The whole idea of a special master may be thrown out. Or it could be reaffirmed, meaning we'll have an objective set of eyes on these documents. I mean, how does it even get here? I remember when Sheriff Joe Arpaio had a judge who'd made a ruling against him, a house raided. He had the owners of the Phoenix New Times newspaper reported against him, thrown in his jail, raided and thrown in his jail. But isn't this uncharted territory to weaponize the law, branch of law enforcement to raid the properties of an ex-president is, is that anything like that ever happened before no it's completely unprecedented um you you know there have been cases of an arpaio type of guy who just decides i'm going to go on a vigilante hunt for whoever i suspect and i don't need any probable cause i'm just going and then i'll dream up probable cause later on and that that's the local you know crooked sheriff that we all seen in the movies, right? But this is totally unprecedented where you're talking about a president of the United States and it's never happened before. So you have to go to the precedent law, 2005 cases, uh, United States versus Stewart, which is the last time the Supreme Court decided on a lawyer being raided. And this lawyer, Lynn Stewart, was the lawyer for the blind sheik. If you remember the blind sheik case, you had the 93 bombing, you had the 90, um, uh, and associates of his had the 98 bombing or the 97, 96 bombing of the embassies in Kenya and the embassy in Tanzania, uh, maybe was involved in the planning, but he goes to jail and then he's involved through an intermediary, this Lynn Stewart, of getting messages out to Al-Qaeda, if that's not just an FBI front organization for creating fear and terror. But, but supposedly sending messages to Al-Qaeda. So that's what we're talking about here. There could be no higher national security standard in the public's right to know and the need for DOJ to pounce on this because it could be a 9-11 being planned. And even then, the court found for a special master, this Gary Naftalis. So I, you know, Trump's people did put this case, precedent case in, United States versus Stewart. Um, and uh, no, media is totally quiet on that. It's the most uh, biggest case of terrorism in America outside of 9-11. Um, and, and they gave him special masters. So this, this calls for erring on the side 
because it's so precedent and so extraordinary, erring on the side of doing everything right and checking every box in favor of the president. Otherwise, two, two months before any election, hey, we're going to do a raid. Uh, we can have somebody slip an envelope in to a desk drawer, and now we can search the whole house. A 10-hour raid, 30 agents, uh, and then you get all the goodies. You don't have to do a steel dossier anymore and, and put a whole bunch of spies in the campaign. You can just raid the house. So who would have authorized this? Well, um, they got a search warrant through the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Um, the they only needed a local magistrate judge, which is sort of like a judge with training wheels, a judge in training, which is this Bruce Reinhardt. Uh, and he authorized it. And they just yesterday uh, publicized the search warrant, which was a affidavit letter, which is only one person signing a letter. Name has still been withheld. So you don't know your accuser that said that this uh, red letter, this re uh, red weld letter, it's a, like an envelope that contained classified information was in Trump's desk. So that gave the predicate and the probable cause for them not to just search the storage room, which was what the whole interchange of between the archives back and forth was all about just the storage room. And that expanded the search to Trump office. Um, but that was a guy named Benjamin or not Benjamin Bratt, but uh, Bratt is his last name at DOJ. Uh, so you like, it's close to your situation. You know, you got one crooked, uh, you know, guy in the sheriff and one crooked person to write the, uh, search warrant on, you know, Hey, I saw a car, you know, okay. That's probably probable cause. So that's really what happened. Um, and we're fighting it, uh, tooth and nail right now. All right. Well, that's the official story, but who really authorized it? Well, I've got some very good ideas. It's he's almost incriminated himself. Uh, Peter Strzok, believe it or not, Mr. Crossfire Hurricane, Mr. Impeachment One, Impeachment Two, Mueller Report, and Andrew Weissman, those that pair, uh, Strzok left the FBI, but still seems like he's got a CIA position or some kind of DHS position in a shadow type task force. He seems like he watched the actual. There's actually two raids that happen in order to make sure the privileged information isn't raided. There's what they call a filter team with the highest level of classification of people that go in first, and then the regular FBI goes in. And it looks like that filter team might have been the one that poisoned the well, because what they did was they just flipped 30 empty folders that said classified, secret, and top secret on the floor. So if you're the FBI coming in as a regular agent, you go, wow, this is a horrific crime scene. There's an orgy of evidence all over the floor. There's classified information everywhere. Trump's guilty. But the people on the filter team is a very small group of people. And the people who would have clearances, they call them sigmas, levels of knowledge, of clearance uh, for nuclear weapons, especially. And the deployment of nuclear weapons is only a couple of people. Uh, Matt Pottinger being one of them who was in the Trump White House the whole time. Uh, as a national security advisor, and then Peter Strzok. So just by process of elimination, looking at the sigma levels of classification to be able to look at those documents, uh, it's a very small group of people. I also set, uh, stood next to a guy named Benjamin Park, who testified that he was the one on the filter team actually touching the documents. 
So it's, it's a small group and we'll know more, hopefully, if a special master is named. We'll get more insight into how that was actually done. For an ex-president's properties to be raided, wouldn't that have to be authorized by the sitting president? Well, you're right. Um, the uh, Merritt Garland, the sitting attorney general, did sign off on it, and there is a signature from Joe Biden. Now, whether Joe Biden was given the paper after the fact, whether Joe Biden even knew what he was signing, because there is that potential issue, um, we don't know. But there is a Molly Hemingway, a great uh, journalist in Washington, D.C., does have uh, a, an article out, six things, six shocking things you didn't know about the Trump raid. And one of them is that Joe Biden had uh, intimate knowledge that he approved both search orders, both for the storage area and for the office area. That's her reporting. She seems to have a pretty solid reference on that. Well, doesn't this set up a tit-for-tat opportunity now whereby if Trump gets elected, you know, next thing Bill Clinton's getting raided, Biden's getting raided, and it, and it just spirals out of control? Absolutely, and I think this is bigger than, uh, I'm not a Trump guy, I'm not a Biden guy. Uh, I think this is democracy here um, at stake and, and the, our constitution here on this side of the pond at stake. Um I, I can't even see anything like this happening in Europe, to be honest. Uh, it's so blatant. I, I, I know it has, and I don't want to say it hasn't, but against a former leader of a, of a free world country, maybe in the days of Stalin, it may have happened. But I definitely want to see protections and law around this, which says you have to have a transparent process where you present your probable cause, not just the one judge in, in camera and it's in secret, but it has to be like an appeals panel. It should be, we're going to be going to a three judge appeals panel tomorrow uh, here in Atlanta. I think it should be like a nine judge on bonk panel before you spring this on, on somebody and people say you'd hide the documents or whatever. If Trump, that's the other thing Trump mentioned is if there was uh, like a Robert Hansen, who was our FBI agent that was giving information to the Soviets, or you have the Cam Cambridge spy ring in England where, you know, guy um, Burgess and, and so forth, Kim Philby are giving Russian secrets and you have to stop it. That's one thing. So that's, that shows intent, but if they're just at rest, if the documents are at rest and the, the bar needs to be much higher um, we trust the Secret Service to guard our nuclear football when the president's out at rallies and so forth. And that's in motion. Here we're talking about behind a lock to a secure area under the guard of, again, the same Secret Service. Only you're in a stationary position. You're in a compound. They keep saying it's a golf course. There's no golf course there, folks. I've been there. There's no golf course where Trump lives there. It's, a, it's one mansion with 50 rooms. It's closed most of the year. They open it up just in the wintertime. So uh, the, this, at, for objects at rest, for documents at rest in a secure facility, um, and there was even a, a congressional um, a, a requisition to improve and harden the security, right? That, that should be. But this kind of attack for classified documents, it's too easy for one lawyer to just slip an envelope in and and create the predicate. And we have a lawyer by the name of Alina Haba, 
H-A-B-B-A, reminds you of the singing group ABBA from, I think, Sweden, who says she was in Trump's area without his knowledge, rooting around and the last person to touch the documents. So there's all kinds of things that just are red flags in this investigation. So let's say this goes completely against Trump. What is the worst case scenario for him in terms of legal outcomes? Well, mishandling classified information is 10 years. Uh, conspiracy, if it's shown that he had conspired with someone like a lawyer to falsify information, let's say Christina Bob, his lawyer, that he had no classified information. If there's some kind of traffic back and forth, that's another 10 years. So it's 20 years. Um, I, think, I think it could be as low as seven, depending on the classification level and as high as 10. Uh, if the highest level is, is in the Espionage Act is death. The highest level of punishment is death. The Rosenbergs got the death penalty. And that was for seven typewritten pages by Ethel Rosenberg. So, you know, th this is high stakes, uh, uh, high stakes politics for sure. Let's say it goes completely in the opposite direction then. Is there the ch a chance that people will be held accountable for pursuing this route? Uh, yeah, well, I've definitely recommended that Trump pursue, uh, in, in talking with some legal folks down in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, uh, a, a lawsuit of misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, and also FBI investigatorial misconduct, hopefully. And what do you see the outcome as being? Um, I see the outcome as it being delayed past the election so that we can, so the Democrats can have a cloud over the Republicans for the midterms. I think it, it actually had the exact opposite effect. The raid produced, you know, a gigantic crowd in Wilkes Bar, uh, Pennsylvania for the Trump turnout. The line was just so long, you just couldn't believe it. Um, and then there's another, uh, rally he has on the 23rd or 25th in North Carolina, I think you're going to see it again in the crowds. Um, you know, people just, when they see wrong, they just feel like they need to go out. They don't know what to do necessarily. What do I do about something that's happening in, in these courtrooms, mahogany courtrooms, but they grab their Trump flag that they were told that they were supposed to be ashamed of. And they say, no, I'm going to go. So, and that's what I recommend people do. <clears throat> Vote with your feet, just take your Trump flag, go out there and just show your support. So is the prospect of incarceration um, crossing over into a form of martyrdom then? Well, if they keep going, um, you know, Bill Barr on the right uh, jumped on the bandwagon saying, hey, we need to, you know, make sure that Trump's punished but, and indicted, but we don't want to see him convicted. Or we need to make sure that Trump is punished publicly in, uh, in the press and so forth but not indicted. Now he keeps backing off, but it's like, well, why are you out there saying Trump should have anything happen to him? Why aren't you defending his, his personal right of privacy, especially for a former president? Because if he had conversations, um, let's say, let's take a, you know, an Eisenhower going into a Kennedy type thing. And Eisenhower had conversations about Bay of Pigs you may want to tell your successor, hey, they're, you know, Alan Dulles and all the gang are going to spring an invasion. They're not going to tell you until it's over, like they did with me in Guatemala. You may want to keep the papers 
that were associated with your conversations to show the next president to try to beat the deep state. The deep state then says, no, we can't have that. We, we need to go raid Eisenhower. We need to go raid Kennedy. You can see where this is the deep state's dream, uh, where they always will have it over the presidents. Um, this Presidential Records Act, which is supposed to be supposedly the law that covers this, says that the, the records have to go back. Um, but it used to be a very collegial process where there was 12 years where the documents would go back and forth depending on the memoirs. They wanted the president to write the memoirs. It felt like preserving history was the most important thing. And then they would get all the records back over a 12-year period. It's never been weaponized. There's no criminal provisions of the, of the Presidential Records Act. This is the first criminalization ever. So this is totally uncharted territory in that uh, regard as well. So do you think that this is the new cloud then to replace the cloud of him working for Russia, which was condescending and ridiculous? Yes, I do think this is the new cloud. It's Andrew Reisman's latest, uh, you know, new uh, thing that he came up writing with bad scripts with Adam Schiff. You know, Adam Schiff wanted to be a script writer in Hollywood and failed miserably. And so he ended up in Washington, D.C. And that's how these things happen, I think, with Andrew Weisman and, and Peter Strzok. So, um, you know, going forward, I, I, I just don't think... You know, the, one, one of the, the trustee, the lawyer for Trump had a good analogy of, hey, it's sort of an overdue library book type of thing where you're supposed to have the records for a certain period of time and then figure out which ones you're going to keep, which ones go back. So that, it, that might have been underplaying it a little too much, but, but it is supposed to be a communicative process. And Trump was being very open about what you guys need. Come on in, take whatever you need, uh, you know, leave what is mine. So if, if he would have had resistance and said, no, you can't step foot on Mar-a-Lago, then I think you might have a, uh, an argument there. Um, so we're hoping, um, uh, we're, we're hoping that this hopefully is gets a Republican Congress. This causes a backlash and we put in a Republican Congress, we get on the intelligence committee, Turn over the J6 committee, let everybody out of jail who's being held habeas corpus right now. Can you imagine being over a year held habeas corpus with no uh, indictment? That's crazy. Um, and, and then drop this thing and then tighten up the Presidential Records Act to say, look, here's how it has to be. If, if the documents are going to be moved, they have to be moved to a, a facility we approve. Here's what the facility, but then never can you raid then. Once you send the documents and they leave the White House, once they go through that check at the White House before they move, you can never then raid and say, I got you later on. So Hillary Clinton was pushing the Russian narrative in a way that was insulting global intelligence. So do the Clintons have a role in this second cloud? Or, uh, you know, are they coming back into the picture in, in a big way instead of retiring gracefully? Sean, you can't believe these things happen, but they happened. Hillary Clinton has made a come out of the, it's sort of like the Loch Ness Monster, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just when you think, well, that's done, all of a sudden the British Navy has to test some new mini-sub, you know, and here comes the Loch Ness Monster again and people out, is it the Firth of Forth or the fourth or fifth i can't remember what but they always have to it creates another Loch Ness monster scare 
And that's what we've got here in America. Hillary came out and wore a, a coronavirus dress. It looked like a bunch of spike proteins all over her dress. Just scared the bejesus out of little kids. It was it was worse than we had this uh, Wizard of Oz with the flying monkeys that gave kids such bad. So it's yeah, here it is. So you think that they they um, probably gave the nod to all this then the Clintons? I don't think they gave the nod to it, but I don't think they minded. Andrew Weissman probably has one of those tin can uh, string phones that go directly to the Clintons. Um, <laughs> I just was on a show last night with folks in, in Mena, Arkansas and in Arkansas who, you know, going all the way back. So it was fun time to go back to all my research back there. And the Clintons are a story that just keeps on giving Bill Barr and the whole, his whole administrating of the drug route from Mena airport and the promise software and Danny Casalero and all that stuff, Bob Maxwell, Glenn Maxwell. It's just, this, it, it's all coming back again in this case. So it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, R.I.P. Barry Seal. So we've got a few questions come in on this subject. And Agent Orange has asked, are still pictures a norm on raids or searches aside from body cams? Who took still pics and were they shared under secure networks? Um, the picture was taken by, uh, we think, uh, somebody on the filter team with the f empty folder spread out. We I. I think I broke the story that the folders were empty uh, on Jeff Prather's show before the judge uh, came out and said that they wanted to review what actually was in the picture. That was the last page of the picture, 43rd page of their filing. And they threw it in without any caption or anything. They knew that this was a doctored picture. And you'd look at it and there was, there was only one of the folders that had any staple in it. And then was only one page stapled to it. So it, the rest were empty. And it turned out, yes, there was 30 empty folders. That's the first red flag, um, you know, right there. So, um, yes, there were the pictures were shared on WhatsApp, which is notoriously unsafe. It was they were sent from one side of uh, Palm Beach Island to uh, West Palm Beach. But that's like a million people on press row are on that bridge in between. You know, and CNN typically is on the distribution list of the FBI uh, counterintelligence team, it seems, in the courtroom and in the investigation with all these leaks. That's the other thing, Sean, is there's unprecedented leaks. The reason why you know so much about it and I know so much about it is because we've had incredible leaks with these pictures. And normally you'd never have a, a picture like that leak. Uh, but that was out there before um, it was put into the DOJ filing against the special master so that was definitely not secure um and this has been there's been more leaks in this than there were with peter uh with peter struck and christopher Steele. um with the dossier so they must be terrified of him getting re-elected when is the election and what what do you see as the outcome well the midterms are less than two months away here for uh every congressional seat and one third of all of our Senate seats. And then 2024, whew, that's such a long, that's like reverse dog years, <laughs> or maybe that it's dog years. Uh, it's so far away. Uh, you know, Trump could be in jail by then, or he could be the most popular man in America by then. It's just such a hard thing to predict. His whole candidacy was hard to predict. DeSantis is another kind of horse in the race in the governor of Florida. There's the governor of South Carolina, Christy Nome, that's in there. There's a gal out in Arizona that people talk about. 
So there's there's other candidates in the hunt. There's other horses in the race, but Trump is the clear, you know, man of war secretariat candidate right now. Uh, we'll see what happens. Who's the clear candidate on the other side? You know, Biden is is like <laughs> a glue horse. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you believe Biden is like the horse that they put in the in the pickup truck, but then they film it so <laughs> You can't see the pickup truck. You you see the horse kind of looking around like it's not running, but it's going around the track faster than any other horse has ever gone. So, I mean, maybe they're going to try the old glue foot trick again with the pickup. Um, but other than that, Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris or... Oh, not Hillary. Uh, I, oh. I think it could be Hillary. I think it could be Hillary. Put it this way, there's so much people have spent their whole lives kowtowing like Donnie O'Sullivan at CNN who have just made Hillary worship uh, like a like a cottage industry um, that why not? You know, you're going to the CIA is going to, you know, increase your social media mentions by 100 anytime you touch a keyboard. So she's the odds on favorite from the intelligence community point of view. She'll cover up anything they want them to. She'll say anything. She'll go after anybody. And with her wielding supreme executive power, as they say, you know, it's a Monty Python sketch at that point. All right. Have you got anything else to add on this subject before we go over to your book, Citizen Journalism? Uh, no. Uh, this is a good time to switch over and this is a good time for a shameless plug. Never, never a wrong time for the shameless plug, right? Uh, both of these co-authored with me by Addy Ads. You know, Addy, you certainly have a, a great dedication, Sean, to helping uh, young journalists coming up. You gave Addy an interview in London uh, that I still remember. I didn't know who Addy Ads was. Uh, and then I, he's interviewing Sean Atwood. I'm like, oh, wow, he's a big-time journalist. I better meet this guy. <laughs> so we're good friends now. He's on one coast, I'm on the other, but uh, he adds a lot. He types faster. I'll challenge anybody on either side of this pond in a typing contest with accuracy to, with Addy Ads. And he's he's a hard-working working kid, too. So, um, And, you know, two heads are better than one. He gets to a lot of things. He covers elections a lot more than I do. I tend to hang out in courtrooms a lot, but he covered the Glenn Maxwell trial every day in the cold. So he gets around to a lot of places I don't, and hopefully two heads are better than one. What inspired the project? Well, I had all these books that I wrote in 2020, and I sold 18,000 books. I know you're a great author, Sean. You've got, I think, six books out there, something like that. Sixteen. Oh my goodness gracious, I'm behind 16. Well, I wrote booklets because I'm not as smart as you, Sean. And I wrote uh, 99 page booklets, basically. I wrote 42 of them. And a lot of people are saying, well, how about the books? You knew you got shut down on Amazon. I said, well, Eddie, Eddie's on Amazon. Maybe he'll publish my books. Maybe we'll, he'll co-author with me. So we're rewriting every book, updating all 42. We're at number three right now. These are the first two um, right here. And uh, you can get those on Kindle, which are super cheap on Kindle, or you can get the ones. These go up in, in value. I just saw this one, uh, uh, one like this, selling for 10 times uh, what it sold for th uh, two years ago. And I thought if Bitcoin would have done that, right? All the, there wouldn't be anybody watching us. They would all be like, uh, 
you know, at their mansion someplace. So um, these are people do buy these just for speculation purposes because you're going to get pulled. You're going to lose. You're going to get knocked out, and and then there's a, a short supply of these things. You're getting asked some questions about Epstein. Let me just scroll back and find them. Let's have a look. Um, what's your view on Trump wishing Maxwell, Clinton Maxwell, well when he made that comment? I think sometimes he makes these trite comments. Um, you've written a lot about Jeff Epstein. You know a lot about Jeff Epstein. I tend to focus on the Columbus operation with Les Wexner. Bill Barr figures into this well because Mena Airport had kind of been discovered and Bill Barr flies down there in 85 and tells Bill Clinton, hey, the money's showing up at the Rose Law Firm, but the laundry is shrinking. Stop shrinking the laundry. You know, you could be president. Okay, the big guy likes you, but stop shorting the laundry. Uh, and so they switched there after 85. Barry Seal is murdered in 86. So that gets takes care of that loose end. And then the uh, uh, operation gets transferred to Columbus, Les Wexner and Jeff Epstein, the long route. Epstein also does the long route to Hong Kong for BCCI in Hong Kong. So you have Spook Air by Bob Fitrakis is probably the best article about that. Whitney Webb has also written a lot about this on based on Bob's articles. And her own research, Johnny Vedmore as well in Wales. So this is the the juice that I like to focus on is the early drug days of Jeff Epstein and the uh, the Columbus operation. Um, and that's the part a lot of people with the State Department, DynCor, viruses and vaccines in Haiti, viruses and vaccines in Africa and the Middle East. That's the part that I like to focus on because everybody else covers the I, you know, I've been to uh, to Little St. James, Little St. Jim, and they used to call it. I took the boat out there and everything, and I went to the British Virgin Islands, and a lemon shark, shark almost, you know, a big lemon shark came up behind me as I was doing my, my show in the water. <laughs> so so I've done all that, but, I, but I, I tend to like to focus on the early days of Epstein with Bill Barr in, in, in Columbus. So... I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, well, let's expand on that a, a bit because I find that fascinating. Do you want to explain to the viewers then about uh, America, sovereign air transport, what they were used for and how they ended up in the hands of Epstein and Wexner? Yeah, um, Amer you know, Air America was the classic CIA cutout. Southern air transport was the, you know, famous cutout for... Um, you know, Spook Air is the article by Bob Fitrakis that really does a great job. Or Whitney Webb on Last American Vagabond talks a lot about it. But this was the operation of, hey, if you keep shorting the laundry bill, we'll find alternatives. Uh, and so this is where Epstein really gets. This is why uh, Les Wexner buys and gives the Stone Fortress Mansion on 92nd or whatever uh, on the east side, gives it to Jeff Epstein because Jeff Epstein made Les Wexner an awful lot of money. Uh, in both Dayton, Ohio, and the Limited, and then later Victoria's Secret. So um, uh, th that that's the the shift of Barr favoring and George Bush favoring Clinton. Uh, Clinton by '87 is launched. He's been governor now so many times in a row. He was Attorney General, and he did a great job. And then he was getting gaining popularity. He's got a big pile of cash from short in the laundry. 
they, they decided to move the operation to Columbus with Les Wexner. And that really, this is what Bill Barr saw happening by opposing Trump and, and, you know, cheering Trump going to jail for this raid. It's like all the Bill Barr blowback is coming in, all the Epstein blowback, all the Bob Maxwell promise software and the delayed Maxwell with a company called Cargo Metrics. And remember Terramar? Remember Terramar? She's a submarine pilot. She's a helicopter pilot. So, so Terramar would go 12 miles offshore and then discover oil for the Dutch Royal family or the British, you know, BP or Royal Dutch Shell. And, you know, all that blowback starts coming back with this raid. Well, if you're going to expose all this stuff about Trump and his taxes and his, you know, uh, legal uh, communications and his medical records, well, we're going to go back and, you know, let's revisit Mina. Why not? You know, so it's it, uh, hopefully your your books on Epstein will see a rebound, uh, another surge, I should say, uh, with this raid. Uh, they've been shadow banned, actually. <laughs> That, that makes sense. Are you on Amazon? Or are you? Yeah, but we just spoke to Amazon and they said that the Epstein one has been considered too controversial and has been shadow banned effectively, um, which is a pity because we've got part two about to come out. So I might, I might retitle them because they said specifically the title, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton, was too controversial. Well, you know, I, I looked a lot into Prince Andrew, and I don't want to say this just because the Queen is dead, and now, you know, she had a husband that wanted to be a virus when he died, and I don't know if she wants to be a virus too, but uh, in Africa, so that they can keep their possessions for the royal family. But, but then they also had the the son who seemed to be being used as an intelligence agent between the British Virgin Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and. There's a short little helicopter ride there that he, she, he seemed to make a lot with Ghislaine. And it seemed like the, basically the Bob Maxwell, um, I, I can't remember the, uh, the press that he had. It was, wasn't Pergamon Press or something like Pergamon Press, where he was collecting all the intellectual property from all the scientific magazines, Springer, Link, and all those, and, and running compromise operations in England. And then they just move that to a nice sunny British Virgin Islands. And hey, why not have Epstein do the same operation over on the US Virgin Islands? And it seemed like a big, like an intellectual property laundering operation and, and compromise operation, right? And you wrote about this very well. And I, and, and so I, I think when you say, you know, did, did Prince Andrew kill them? Uh, kill him? No, obviously not. He didn't pull the trigger. But is he one of the cabal that benefited tremendously by Jeff Epstein? No question. I ran down a Eric Braverman and this uh, foundation called the Path Foundation with Fergie, the wife, uh, where they were taking people down to this uh, Epstein's Island and talking about living forever, longevity. It starts out by saying, you know, fruits and vegetables and everything. But stay a little bit later if you want to hear about you know, organ transplants in case you ever get sick or longevity. And that's where you start getting into, we can get you to the head of the line for organ transplants and stuff. And, you know, uh, David Rockefeller, we, you know, seven heart transplants, no problem. So, uh, and then when you say Bill Clinton, um, again, there's a whole drug operation there that Jeff Epstein knew the parallel operation. 
in Mina to his operation in Columbus. So, you know, it's like, you know, a guy made a joke last night and when he sees a dead squirrel, he goes, what did that squirrel know about Hillary Clinton? (laughs) (laughs) So I I think, I think you have, I'd love to see your book. And so I hope you can retitle it in such a way that uh, it gets out there. Yeah. So for the people then, you know, you mentioned laundering and drug operation, but, but, you know, many of the viewers are not familiar with the specific mechanics of it. So from that era, then the main era, could you explain to the viewers what the cargo was and how the money was actually laundered? Sure. Um, there was a corporation still in existence called the Arkansas Development Finance Corporation. And basically it was to make sure that people could have low income people who are renting could have homes, starter homes. Well, Hillary bent down a little bit and said, well, why don't we make it fake lots out on this river, out on the Arkansas River at a place called Whitewater. And that way we can resell the lots over and over and over. And what will happen is if Bill goes to a barbecue or something, he'll make a whole bunch of friends and then say, do you need a $50,000 loan? And then you just need to go over here to to Arkansas Development Finance with this piece of paper and fill it out. We'll give you $50,000. But it's funny how that piece of paper never landed on their door unless they had already put a bag of $10,000 in unmarked bills on the door of Rose Law Firm. Um, so that's how the Arkansas Development Finance worked. Um, and Webb Hubble ran that for Rose Law Firm. And, and uh, you know, Vince Foster knew about that as well. But the promise software that Bill Barr had was more of an electronic tracking of money. So if you flew in a plane and you sponsored a pilot and that pilot accidentally uh, opened the door during flight over Mina Airport and the hidden compartments in the doors and the nose cone accidentally left a whole bunch of cocaine fallout, we promise that when we pick up the stuff, uh, we'll give you a credit in this software system called Promise to, to ship you that amount of money in weapons. Okay, so if $500,000 falls out of the sky, we promise we're gonna give you a $500,000 voucher to ship you weapons. And the company was called Parco Meter or POM. Uh, and that's the one who, you know, it's sort of like metal. It's sort of six foot long, you know, so hopefully the X-ray wouldn't, it's heavy. So hopefully the X-ray wouldn't pick it up. And Waco, a lot of people don't know, Waco was, in case of cloud cover, because Arkansas is a little bit into the United States, in case of cloud cover, Waco was the backup uh, landing strip. So this whole thing, David Koresh and that, all that, no, Waco was the alternative, Mina. I, I, Bill Barr, sorry, I'm giving away all your secrets here. But that's how it happened. So the Promise software, whether it existed or not, uh, Jackson Stevens had a, um, a, a company called Systematics, and they did the software um, redevelop, re, re, uh, first in Florida, in Venice, where the 9-11 hijackers are doing reinvesting uh, pension funds for the railroad. But then he started the same thing in, in Little Rock, in uh, um, uh, Little Rock, with, uh, and, he, and he got Walmart started. He got Sam Walton started with money. He got uh, Tyson's Food. Tyson's chicken uh, started and these were all great friends of the Clintons. 
So they use the money to launch a lot of Arkansas's most famous businesses. I'm being told that my microphone is a bit low. Is that the case? Oh, yeah, I'm seeing it on 5,000, 4,000, 3,000. Uh, let me just refresh my screen real quick. Just bear with me for a couple of seconds. Right, is that is that any better, I wonder? Let me have a look on the levels. 5,000, 4,000, 3,000. Yep, yeah, that looks like it's much better now. Okay, great. Sorry about that, people. Oh, and my camera bat battery is simultaneously gone. <laughs> Uh-oh, Bill Barr. Um, Bill Barr. Well, well, I, well, I, well, I change the battery... George, do you want to just tell people where they can find you and support you and get your books and follow you and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm at RealGeorgeWeb1 on Twitter. There's the camera. RealGeorgeWeb1 on Twitter. And I'm on Substack at www.substack.com, George Webb, G-E-O-R-G-E Webb. I am on Venmo, at, and I need money, folks. I spent all my 750000 doing this the last five years. Uh, G-E-O-W-E-B-B. And um, I am on PayPal, uh, and you can go to my Twitter, and you can see those links. And Sean, thanks for letting me on, be on the show. Yeah, I just asked you to to plug all that stuff while I was fixing the mic. We still got ten minutes, so if anyone's got any questions, please okay. put them in the chat. Um, I, Sean, I'm gonna have to come back because I have a four o'clock. And I okay, have no worries. Yeah. I will. I will talk to the viewers then and, and get Andrew to come in. Uh, but I want short, to come shortly. back. Promise. Yeah, we'll have definitely. Pro <laughs> promise. We promise you, you to bring you back, George. Huge thank you for coming on. We really appreciate you spending time with us. And I, I imagine that people, you know, the level of knowledge you've you've given tonight, the details, it's been fascinating, and we've learned a lot. So huge thank you, George, and good luck with the books. Love you, Sean. Bye bye. Love you too. Much love. Cheers. Bye bye. Right, so has anyone got anything to ask in the chat while we wait and try and bring Andrew Gold back and see if our next guest is ready? Next guest is Ryan Graves, followed by Norman Baker. Ryan Graves, as we said earlier is a former Lieutenant U.S. Navy and F-A-18F pilot who served for a decade, including Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Inherent Resolve. So let me go and see in the people. Oh, I do see him. No, that's, um, that's not him, actually. Let's see if he's joined the people yet. And let's see if Andrew has joined the people yet. Andrew is, he's got his legs up right now. He's watching Netflix. He's looking at his watch thinking, oh, got another bloody 10 minutes. So we're going to have to wait and see if Ash can shake him off the sofa. <laughs> so, yeah, so if anyone's got any questions, please put them in the chat. Let's see. I'll have a look at what you've said so far. We didn't touch on Obama. I know we didn't, did we? The press, what did it... President who won the what was it the peace prize? Which peace prize was it? it? Was the I can't remember the Nobel Peace Prize 
president who had his own kill list, who continued the wars, continued the mass incarceration, locked up more whistleblowers than anyone else. Yeah, that's what we think of him. It just goes from one psychopathic mass murderer to another, doesn't it? Should have got the prize of the most bombs dropped. I agree. Stu, gratis. And as Jake says, <laughs> I'm not sure that politicians are beyond evil, but they are certainly immoral and unscrupulous. I think that the political spectrum is varied, but when you get to the top of politics, you are a psychopathic mass murderer. You can kill hundreds of thousands of people in the Middle East and call it collateral damage while pocketing billions of taxpayers' money in contracts such as Halliburton, Blackwater. Do you remember that cabal back in the Bush crime family days? We're going to smoke them out of the caves. Osama bin Laden, we're coming for you. Public enemy number one. Whoops, just got another message from Ash. A total of 563 strikes, largely by drones, targeted Pakistan, Somalia and Yemen during Obama's two terms, compared to 57 strikes under Bush. Yep. You could get in as the new hope and just go to town, create 10 more, 10 times more evil deeds than his predecessor. Dan said he's reading, interested in to read George's book. Matthew Steeples has been throwing a lot of Epstein questions out tonight. Appreciate your input, Matthew. And I don't know if you saw the video, London's Secret Societies, McCann and Markle, that we put out separately. I think it's got between thirty to 40,000 views right now. It's going straight up, going viral on that one. You are, Matthew, thank you. You were on fire that night talking about London's secret societies. It was brilliant. Jake Ford, a sensible choice for presidential candidate will be Tulsi Gabbard. I did watch Tulsi Gabbard on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I liked what she had to say. She's ex-military and she was exposing the military-industrial complex and saying that that needs to be restrained. Maybe my mini cheddar's got me going, Matthew, with a little tipple of something I'm sure and Jake says I think there is less an issue of being psychopathic and more merely being human yeah well there's good and bad in every human and we've all got the capacity to kill if someone came in your house and you were a family person and that person was trying to kill your family members you'd be left with no choice I think most of us other than to attempt to stop that from happening by killing the perpetrator We've all got the capacity and when war comes around the psychopathic leaders try and switch on nationalism so that young people will die for rich people's wars. We see it over and over. Getting messages. Another message from Ash. Let's have a look what he's chipping in with. Got Oh, um, we've got a few new patrons in tonight. Thank you, patrons. Really appreciate it. 
I think that we are blessed to have this community. I think I'm blessed to have the platform and the love and support of everybody are for this mission. You know, our mission statement, I've been saying it for years, is to end the war on drugs and mass incarceration, take all that, that money and go after predators, these evil people who lock, who cause so many people to be locked up because the root cause of crime is paedophilia and childhood trauma primarily. Those young people get on drugs and end up in crime and prison. We see it over and over. And the root cause is the paedophiles. So they need to be dealt with. And they're not being dealt with because the government is complicit in that activity. Some elements of the government are complicit in that activity, as we've seen through the Epstein case. And when Gerard Foray comes on from France, he chose our platform because of our mission statement to tell his story for the first time ever in the English-speaking world. And when you hear his story and who he was associated with, that song about cocaine was written about him. He saved Mick Jagger in a foreign country when he was getting attacked. And he hobnobbed with the elites. His dad was a mason uh, high up in the World Health Organization. And he come to understand. And when he was staying at a witch's house in the UK. And he heard weird noises in the night. But the house was kind of a prison and he didn't want to go down and look. And he waited until the witch fell asleep. And he went to the basement. And they had Mongolian kids in cages and elites coming and taking them. For you know what? It opened his eyes. And when, Finn, when his dad was the doctor for the leader of Morocco. And the western powers were moving against the leader of Morocco. So the leader of Morocco put cameras in places elites were going to sodomize kids and taped all of this footage. And honestly, it was two, three hour long, I think, that the interview. It's so powerful. James, the cameraman's editing it presently. It's going to come out soon. It's a whole new viewpoint from the, the the hierarchy of the French government and French elites and international elites that he socialized with. It's a whole new perspective on these super predators which we have been reporting on and exposing and has been part of our mission for a long time but we've been silenced on on all the other platforms except for this one. All right, so we're almost at 10 past. Let's see if the gold is awake. If he's come back in yet. Or if he's going to ride it out to the last nanosecond. <laughs> no. He's not in the chat yet. So let me see what other um, points you put in the chat. France is a go-to point for elite. Yep. According to Gerard. And Gerard, he recently exposed a woman who was selling her kid... It was like five for 10,000 euros a night and giving the kid all kinds of drugs so she would not feel anything or know what was going on. Absolutely obscene. This woman was getting away with this and Gerard Faure has brought this, I'm going to say B word down, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it. 
Macron married his teacher. Biden married his babysitter. Hunter married his brother's wife. It is all very incestuous, this elite activity. Um, Jake Ford has put some comments up there that I can't repeat because they do have community guidelines on this channel as well, this platform. All right, let's bring the Goldman in. And we're also going to bring in Ryan Graves. Let's bring Ryan Graves in. Hello. Hello, my friend. Oh, my word. You know, it's supposed to be my time off when I'm not on, but uh, you end up, you know how it is. There's always stuff to do and I'm working and all that. Um, What happened in the end with people chucking stuff at you, mate? Well, there was a kid downstairs, and he said he saw people run onto the main, onto the other street around here. But I think the kid was in on it, and he was just trying to. Right, I'm toggling off. I'll let you take forthwith. Okay, okay, okay. One sec. Oh, how you doing, Ryan? What's going on? Hey, Andrew. Nice to see you. Yeah, where are you talking to us from today? Oh, I'm just about uh, an hour north of Boston, uh, over in the New Hampshire area. Oh, it's supposed to be United really States. lovely around there. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nice time this uh, this time of year. It's getting in the fall. Oh, nice. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's supposed to be quite beautiful over there. And tell me, you know, give me a bit of a rundown about your background. Yeah, sure. You know, so my name's Ryan Graves. Um, I come from a pretty small town, and uh, I ended up going to school for engineering. Um, I uh, immediately stopped doing engineering when I left uh, college and I elected to join the Navy uh, to go try to fly fighter jets. Uh, I, I really uh, didn't think um, the career path I had set, set myself up on um, was something I, I, I really wanted to do. So I, I no kidding, just kind of changed my major and, and decided to uh, pursue aerospace uh educationally uh to help my chances uh after college of, of getting a a flying slot so whether it helped or not i don't know but um but either way it worked out uh, in my favor i ended up uh, in the navy u.s navy flying the uh, fa-18 foxtrot super hornet mm-hmm. and what all that means is a uh, yeah. it's a the f and the a stands for fighter attack so we do both air to air and air to surface type combat uh, the 18 is, um, I actually don't know where that comes from, but it's just part of the delineation. But, um, and then the F, however, is um, for a two-seat Super Hornet model. A through D are the uh, older Hornets. And right, then they right. got all upgraded to the new Super Hornets. Uh, the E's are single seats and the F's are two seats. Let's right. stop there for a quick second. Gotcha. That, that's pretty fascinating, though. I mean, there's stuff that's a different world to me, and I, I'm really, you know, interested. I've seen all the movies and things about <laughs> fighter jets and stuff like that. Tell me um, a little bit about, um, you know, interest, attention, and action building across government and industry. We're talking about UAPs and stuff today, right? Yeah, we certainly can. Uh, so, you know, in my time in the Navy, um, you know, myself and others in our squadron, we were we were seeing objects. Um, I should call them radar returns that we weren't expecting to see, and it became a safety of flight issue. We we kept seeing them, uh, and they were getting so close to our aircraft that we were they actually split split our aircraft, and we almost had a near mid air with one of them. And wow. that's happened um, 
back in 2015 off the East Coast, and that continues to happen today, uh, even just as recently as the last um, congressional hearing, public hearing on UAP, they talked about there being 11 year misses just in the past recent reporting period. And so it's, right. it's still happening. Wow. And I, and I just realized it's not UAPs because it's phenomena, isn't it? The plural of phenomenon. So it's just UAPs, the plural, isn't it? I don't know which I use. So <laughs> you just said <laughs> UAP I and I was like, there's yeah. no S on the end of it. And I thought, oh no, but that's right. Cause it wouldn't be uh, unidentified. What is it? Aerial phenomena. It would be phenomenon. So it is UAP. That's correct. Yeah, you I guess did, so. You did it right. That's pretty cool. So <laughs> these things actually, what, what they, you nearly had a midair collision what does one of these things look like? Yeah, so it, it was described as a as a dark gray or black cube. Uh, that was about, you know, and this is an estimate, but, you know, somewhere in the, the 8 to 15 foot range, uh, which is a loose estimate. Uh, and it was encompassed in a in a sphere. And the, the kind of point or the apex um, of that cube appeared to be touching kind of the inner surface of that sphere, right? So it was just kind of like, it wasn't like intersecting the sphere in any way. It was just kind of right at the tip. Um, and there was nothing outside of that sphere. I don't know what a clear sphere looks like, right? If it's perfectly clear, you wouldn't know it's there. So, you know, is it translucent? Was it hazy? I don't know, because most of the time when we would fly up to see them, we couldn't. You know, our radars were telling us exactly where it should be. Uh, our cameras are slave to our radar, and it's showing us energy coming from that spot in the sky, higher energy. And all our sensors are synced to our helmet, right? So our, and even our eyes as we look out. And so I see a box exactly where to look. It's probably not my camera, but I see a box exactly where I need to look uh, to, to pinpoint that object as I come to emerge with it. And that's something we do all the time. And yet, uh, more often than not, simply couldn't see anything there, even though our cameras were showing us something. And this is something, so when, when you did see it, you saw this yourself with your own eyes. No, I didn't. I tried and I tried, but our squadron, uh, we had several members that were seeing them inside our squadron. And, um, you know, it's kind of hit or miss. We, I talked to many of our squadron and they're like, yeah, you know, I go fly by them and I couldn't actually see them, but uh, we would all see them on our radar. We see them all in our FLIR, but physically with our eyeballs, uh, for some reason, uh, it was very hard to do. It's funny how we've all changed a little bit, how we feel about it. I mean, could you have imagined that you'd be talking about this 20 years ago? I suppose you'd be laughed out the room and now now we're sort of quite open to it yeah you know for me open to what right that's for me i'm still pretty agnostic all i know is that something's out there um and for us it's very pragmatic because like i said we're flying by these things and one i don't think this is all necessarily one particular thing right so you know if tomorrow you know someone wraps one of these up in a net and pulls it pulls it in front of cnn uh, you know, I don't think that solves the entire issue here. So we need to make sure that we treat this as a potential national security threat because that is a, a very uh, susceptible target to be up there uh, watching our tactics of our of our fighter aircraft. Um, that's a very sensitive area. So mm -hmm. um, we have to be cognizant that, you know, is part of what this could be. And then as we look at, you know, the other options, when we when we cross some of those options off the list, you know, we have to actively engage in the new way because we don't really have a great language for talking about it. Like you just said, right? UAP versus UAPs. Well, it's always a UAP. It's always UAP if we negate all air traffic around the object. What do you call it yeah. still? It's still just a UAP. What if we, you know, account for all celestial objects and air traffic and, 
something else. You know, it's still just a UAP. It's one piece of evidence away from starting back to scratch. So kind of building a communication framework so that people can plant flags and actually move the science forward over time. Jake Forder in the audience asks, have pilots been ordered to shoot down UAP? I've heard rumors of that, not that I'm aware of. Um, and when I say rumors, I mean probably the same rumors that other, uh, you know, that Jake here has um, heard. Uh, within the Navy itself, when we're operating off the East Coast, we are training for our expeditionary deployments. That's really what we do in the Navy. We don't de defend the coast. Um, we, we train there. So we're not actively carrying missiles out there on a regular basis. So for the cases that I'm referring to, it would have to, it would be absolutely exceptional to go through that, to make that happen. It's not as easy as just deciding to one day. Mm. Got a question from a Nexus. What do pilots think they are since they seem to focus on military targets? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, spoiler alert, we don't know, but, um, when we started looking into this at first, we thought it was just a, <coughs> excuse me, thought it was a radar malfunction. And we initially treated it like that until we just happened to get close enough to notice the, uh, the camera actually picking up energy there. Um, and so when that happened, then we realized it was, you know, likely a physical object, not a radar glitch, but what was it? Was it UA, you know, was it a drone? Was it <clears throat> trash? I mean, who knows, right? We didn't go right to uh, UAP at this point, just didn't have enough information. But as we kind of built a, a better understanding of, of how long these things would be airborne and how many would be out there and the fact that they would just be out there all the time and, you know, of course, the shape and the, the flight mechanics, um, we never really, you know, got to a conclusion of what it is, but we did knock some things off the list, right? Uh, we are feeling pretty confident that it's not a secret U.S. project you know, so long as it's operating anywhere near the confines of the law, right? We've had our uh, sure. our leadership say that. Uh, and, you know, even just as, as soon as a, a few days ago, the, the Secretary of the, the U.S. Navy, um, you know, said he, he wasn't concerned that much about UAP because he was concerned about China um, and that he felt that UAP should be uh, in the realm of science and should be studied uh, by the scientific channels. And so, what I hear there is that, you know, that's another another potential candidate being crossed off the list. And so we need to start refocusing our efforts more into that new framework to understand what, what we're looking at. Yeah. So it sounds like they don't really want you getting involved. They want scientists to somehow figure it out. Well, um, me personally. Mm, or like you or like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. What, what like they want the scientists or they don't want the, they want the fighter jet pilots to sort it out yeah well at the end of the day the these guys and girls that are up there flying these flights they don't mm -hmm. have the right tools or um the training to sure. investigate this they're not scientists and you know when you're flying a fighter jet it's kind of like falling out of the sky very slowly in a sense right you're you're always running out of energy so you don't have a lot of time to kind of go mess around it would be a whole thing and there's better aircraft for that type of investigation than fighter aircraft. Um, mm. And, you know, I agree with um, with the general sentiment from the Air Force, which is um, there are very pressing military uh, concerns that are the responsibility of the Department of Defense and all its branches. Um, and they're not a scientific organization. 
Um, sure. With that being said, they do do some work, right? So it's a bit of a, a, a misnomer to say that. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, I'll just stop there. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I understand, but it, but it does feel like it's now just something like uh, among you guys or among the U.S. Navy people and the, the fighter jet pilot people. It's like, is it just? I suppose you said agnostic, but is it sort of understood that it's very possible that these are, let's just say it, you know, something from a different planet or something not not of us. I'm seeing the report from the. Uh, you know, some of the reports from the uh, the aviators that are reporting this that led to that report that came out last year uh, with the 144 cases. You can tell the pilots don't know what they're dealing with. I mean, you, it's very clear that this isn't just a balloon drifting by, you know, the, we're pretty good at our jobs. Um, uh, contrary to um, some of the suggestions about our inability to detect objects and whatnot, but you know we're up there. A lot of uh, there's a lot of noise that we're filtering through automatically. So when something is sticking out on a FLIR footage or something like that, although it may not be remarkable necessarily in its form, it you know it's been filtered quite a bit uh, through a lot of experts um, to actually make it interesting. Uh, and there's no better experts to figure out, you know, what's going on in the sky than the people that we are, you know, training specifically to do that. I mean, that's essentially the job of a, of a fighter pilot is to clear the air in front of him or her and, and shoot something down if they need to. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And it's just, it's, oh, I really want to know what it is or what's going on or what the several different things are. Um, have you given much time to, to speculating in your sort of, you know, give me your wildest, your wildest sort of dream scenario yeah i'll tell you what my dream scenario is somewhat playing out because um what what we have going on right now is a, a new push to really understand this topic uh in a very neutral sense and not just from the normal channels um that it comes from but from the outs from the inside out with industry uh participating uh so i'm working with the american institute of aeronautics and astronautics uh, it's the largest um, consortium of aerospace professionals 30,000 plus members, 86 countries. Um, and within that organization, uh, I chair a, a community of interest on UAP. Uh, and it is industry first people that have been, you know, with NASA and, you know, the Lockheeds and the Boeings and the academic institutions that focus on aerospace topics. And they're, you know, they're all in, they're very interested. Uh, and so it's really uh, different in the sense of who's really getting brought into the conversation now. And it's really kind of coming from an engineering and scientific focus first. Hmm. So I but think we can figure it out. Yeah. I think we can actually figure it out. That's the thing to answer your question is like, this isn't going to be a mystery forever. Like we're going to get, we're going to get some answers. We're going to put the energy into it. It's not an impossible problem. It's just had complications and we're uniquely situated now with the kind of democratization of technology where, you know, people can launch a satellite into space for, you know, half a million bucks that was crowdsourced and, you know, potentially get their own data. So it's, it's reaching a point where um, the gatekeeper can't necessarily keep the gate shut. Wow. Uh, if they are doing that, so that and that's if another point if they are trying to do it. So, I mean, I guess when I'm saying wildest dreams, I'm sort of hoping for you to say, well, I think it could be like an alien from the planet Zorg that's sent like some weird <laughs> stuff to look at us. I mean, does that stuff play in your mind at all? It does. I mean, it's fun. I mean, I'm just like anyone else. It, it, it would be super cool. And I, I just try to separate it. And that's what we do as a, as pilots, really. We 
uh, we kind of put things in the buckets and we deal with it when we need to. And we were dealing with these things on a daily basis. So we would put them into the safety category and we would just um, go about our mission and just be sure to not go around that area. Right. Um, and it's, it's really no different um, in this topic. We have to be careful that we don't let, you know, our interest guide our, uh, our objective view of reality. Uh, because that is a big temptation. And in a sense, we've been uh, tempted to do so with our media on this topic for the past 50 years or so. Uh, we've been kind of trained or um, I just say trained. I don't mean that literally, of course, but uh, we've been trained with our media to view uh, UFOs or UAP or aliens or whatever you think this is in different ways. And it comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got um, questions here. Uh, I will get onto Ray J and Agent Orange's questions, but I want to stick with like the objects and stuff like the objects uh, for now. And we've got one, another one from A Nexus saying, "Has human-made technology been ruled out?" I don't think it has. Uh, I don't think it ever will be, honestly, because I think that within our airspace, there's always going to be some nefarious actor most likely doing something they shouldn't. And they might even take advantage of this, this whole, you know, I'll call it confusion, but fog of war in a sense to, you know, perhaps um, put sensors somewhere or to probe our ability to detect certain things or to uh, push certain directions to get certain information released for their own benefit over someone else. Right. So it becomes an attack vector, just like anything else. And so in a sense, I don't think we ever will uh, be able to rule it out. Uh, but I think we should do our best to rule out uh, the largest groups of humans that we can, right? So countries and certain actors and categories and things of that nature. And we can say, all right, it's probably not that. There's always going to be a little bit of noise. But, you know, generally speaking, we want to, you know, make those conclusions if we can, I think. Good question. Yeah, it is a good question. Thank you, um, A Nexus. And I suppose, I mean, because people uh, sometimes speculate about it being something from China or Russia, but then I've heard other people say, oh, well, the technology is just too advanced for something to just disappear like that and suddenly appear again. Because if there's people are seeing, so how does it work? If they're seeing on a, on a radar, like a box or a sphere or something like that, and then it's there, do, do they would they have had to have seen it enter the country's airspace or is it suddenly there and suddenly not anymore in a way that we can't explain yeah that's a that's a great question too and that's one of the things that uh our hardware factors group within the aiaa or the community of interest uh that i that i work uh that i run uh that we're looking into right because at the end of the day like i said an f-18 is is not a scientific instrument and the sensors are not calibrated for you know taking in uh, analog information of any type and, you know, being able to uh, portray on the screen what that really means, right? It's to operate in very, you know, restricted environments in a sense. Um, and how information is displayed to me after it gets received is important too. Is it combined with other data? Is it filtered out because it's too fast? What's the refresh rate? Uh, what's the scanning volume of the radar, you know, compared to the speed? Yeah. So that will actually make it look like it disappeared off my radar versus, you know, moving quickly. Um, and those are wow. those are the type of th engineering questions that, you know, we're going to look to answer and to uh, work through um, within that mm -hmm. community. Do you have much of a time frame of when, like how you can figure out some of those questions? Yeah, you know, we're, we're a growing group. We have about 35 now and we have essentially um, a number of uh, opportunities to engage in in um, just say new 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 problem solving uh, of that nature. 
And really, it's going to be a continuous process. We'll likely have uh, a quarterly report that will start going out to the general public uh, to explain our progress and our lines of effort uh, to give everyone a better understanding. Uh, at the end of this month, uh, we'll actually be more broadly communicating our existence and we'll start sharing some of the membership and their experience mm. so people can understand, you know, just how, you know, I mean, our hardware factors group or so there, between six, any random six you grab, there's probably about 300 years of NASA experience between them, you know, so wow. these are people that have been uh, around for a while, but there's also, you know, non-traditional people coming in from the tech industry that uh, help with communications and really making sure that we can fight the skeptics uh, and that, that kind of skeptical attitude that stops people from communicating aviation safety hazards. Because at the end of the day, if, if people don't feel comfortable reporting it, they're not going to. And that's how accidents happen. So, yeah, from what I can gather, the situation you guys are in is that you, you know, it's a safety hazard, as you say, you don't know what it is. You're not saying it's aliens or whatever, but because people might think that uap or ufo means aliens they might not report it and they might be fearing ridicule or whatever is that that is that right absolutely yeah mm. and for example right now in the military there's a a bit of discipline in the military and kind of just getting the job done and um you know we've made a lot of good strides in reporting and identifying just the severity of the situation with the the 400 or so cases that were reported uh in the the public hearing uh, it was 144 initially in the UAP task force report. And then during the, the Congressional Intelligence Committee hearing that happened about six to eight months after that, it went from 144 to 400 cases, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that they're expanding per se, but the reporting is increasing. And so we're starting to get a sense of the problem. And, um, you know, that that existed whether we acknowledged it or not, right? It's all about talking about it now that enabled it. Mm. And I don't think that in the commercial sector, in the general aviation sector, they have that freedom and, you know, they're not reporting it and, you know, they're not having a problem with it, right? They're not seeing it. They're not reporting it. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist there yet, right? If it does for our military, yeah. it certainly does for them. I've got a question from Ray J. Um, has Ryan worked with Elizondo who got new videos released? I, uh, I emailed uh, Lou when I saw the New York, well, I didn't email Lou, I emailed the To The Stars Academy when I saw the New York mm -hmm. Times article from 2017. It popped up yeah. on my phone. We should phone explain and, who he is by, just now for those who don't know. Louis, is it Luis Elizondo? Yeah. 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 Do you, you want to? Um, yeah. It'll, it'll, I'll explain who he is as part of the story. It'll, it'll make on. sense. Um, yeah. And so um, I, I saw the, the gimbal video in that New York Times article and I was like, hey, I saw that video, you know, and I, I read the article and I looked in, I saw it to the Stars Academy and I I sent him an email that essentially went to Lou who um, to explain who he is. You know, he um, ran a tip, uh, which was essentially looking into this. That's my understanding. I never directly engaged with a tip to answer that question. I think that was a direct question. Uh, but I did email Lou and say, hey, you know, I saw that video when it was taken. Um, I, of course, I would never tell you anything classified, but, you know, there is more to that video. Um, mm -hmm. So if you'd like to talk about it, you know, I'm happy to give you a, a little insight. Uh, and I never heard anything for four months, just not a, not a thing. And then Lou emailed me uh, and essentially kind of started the process of inviting me to do that unidentified 
show, which involved me going to uh, the Senate Armed Service Committee and Senate Intelligence Committees uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, to communicate this issue. Those, so those were kind of two tangent, uh, tangential paths, or I should say parallel paths that were kind of happening. And that would really kind of be the extent of me working with Lou was that initial engagement. Wow, fascinating. It's all, it's all, I, I'm really interested to see how we're talking more openly about all of this. And there is a question, maybe with a slight conspiratorial tone uh, from Verity Love, which is why would the government allow open communication about UAP or UFOs now when they've been hiding a file over 75 years? What's changed? Yeah. Um, that's a question, right? Um, you know, I don't know. I people ask me all the time, "Do you trust Lou or do you trust this person?" My general, my general position is, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to trust people. I'm here to, you know, find data and, and figure figure this problem out. And you know, my interactions with with Lou were were honest. And from my interactions with my experiences, kind of behind the scenes on this topic, you know, everything that he said is checked out from my perspective. So. You know, I, that's not an answer to your question, but um, that's simply my interaction with him. Um, mm -hmm. Why the government would want to do this after 75 years, if we're going to use that date, um, 25 years, a long time. You know, that's a, that's a generational shift. And at the end of the day, we're our technology is increasing so fast that um, you have to solve problems like this through democratized study and, and sciences you know, data acquisition is huge and, and analysis of that data is um, a big undertaking that requires massive compute. You know, all, all of these considerations that are defined by a current technological time make it incredibly, uh, an incredibly relevant time to, to move this into a public conversation, especially if there is a, a changing of the guard of sorts. And this is all just me talking here. You know, I don't actually know any, of course, but, you know, just kind of generally speaking, that was, that's one, you know, avenue i would imagine yeah i imagine obviously the 75 years is a reference to roswell the roswell incident do, do you believe in that kind of thing do you believe that was a that was a ufo that was an alien that landed yeah again you know i i don't believe you know i I've, i'm aware of the incident and i'm aware of a lot of the contradictions but there's simply not enough evidence to say whether you know something remarkable happened or not I, my, 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 my heart tells me that yes, you know, something, you know, pretty incredible happened there based off of, you know, everything that I understand about the situation, but I don't have that smoking gun somewhere that I can point to and say, you know, I know more so than anyone else on that topic. Right. It's all just public knowledge that I have on that topic. Hmm. I'm going to ask a, a really conspiratorial question that from Agent Orange, which is uh, what stood out to you about plane protocols on 9-11? What hit the towers, plane or object? I mean, to me, it's it was clearly a, a couple of planes. Uh, yeah, that's that's um, that's what I saw when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Watching it. I think that's there's a lot of um, stuff about 9-11 that people think was, you know, the devil or something like that you know i can barely keep up with the uip stuff okay come on there's only so much <laughs> this, <laughs> no, I it's just there's yeah go on yeah, sorry my understanding of that situation is in line i would say with the mainstream historical understanding of that situation yeah i think that's uh probably the same for me yeah we've only got a couple minutes left um do you want to tell us where people you know can they support you can they follow you where, where would you like to send people 
Yeah, you know, I I've been thinking about how I can kind of communicate this topic and this story in a way that um, is outside the quick sound bites and stuff. And actually, this is great talking with you, you know, and just kind of being able to to go on a bit about it. Um, mm. And so I recently created a, a Substack that I'm going to be um, kind of just using to tell the just kind of have conversations like this, you know, with more people at once to kind of talk about the details. I've solicited some uh, kind of like UAP Twitter community artists who um, are going to be providing like literal or artistic interpretations oh, of cool. various situations. So like, it's not just me trying to like, trying to get close. I'm trying to get exactly as I can so that people aren't guessing. And um, of course, none of that's going to be paywall. I'm not looking to put that behind a paywall. Uh, if people want to support me, they can they can subscribe to that and join the community discussion. Uh, but otherwise, um, that'll be out in the open. Uh, but the big thing is that we're gonna I'm gonna be trying to host pilot to pilot interviews through that as well. So uh, I'm look I'm gonna be trying to provide a, a place where uh, military or commercial general aviation aviators that have had these types of uh, incidents or, or situation with UAP and have a conversation at the at the pilot level and then. We can provide a bit of a debrief after that for the for the non-experts in aviation to kind of better understand why that case was special. I think that's going to be really cool. So watch out for that, guys. And thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for coming on. This was really fascinating. Uh, and I like that you don't get too drawn either way, you know, or make conclusions without knowing all the science to it or whatever, you know, that's how I like to be as well. Uh, thanks for the great questions, everyone, as well. Sorry, Matthew, I didn't get onto your mad sounding one about things i've never heard of but i bet i'm sure it is interesting because matthew does ask uh interesting questions and is a very interesting man uh but yeah thank you ryan have a lovely day thank you it was my pleasure bye-bye bye-bye he has gone yeah so don't oh, worry uh, i'm always watching people still knocking on your door mate no we run them off Oh golly! I think, I think, Mar I think Marvin Herbert must have given out. They must have got my address off Marvin Herbert. There's always stuff going on in your There's life, mate. There's always stuff going on. You can never give out your address because I've had people. I got doxxed. Um, Marvin Herbert, the one-eyed hitman we had on the channel, put my address on the internet. But how did he know you? Because he'd been he'd come over to do a thing. Hello, mate. It's Norman Baker. Sean's just gone off. <laughs> Norman, how you doing? Hello, Andrew. Fine, good. Thank you very much. Good, good. Has this been a pretty uh, stressful week for you, even even more than for most people? Well, I wouldn't say stressful. I mean, it's been very busy. Um, lots of calls from different media outlets, uh, mostly alternative media outlets, because uh, the way that the BBC and others report it is, is highly sycophantic and uncritical, which isn't to say we should be unpleasant or anything about the Queen. We shouldn't, but... Um, there are legitimate questions to be raised and another mature democracy will be able to have a sensible conversation and uh, we're not always having that on the mainstream media. I don't use the phrase mainstream media very much, but it happens to apply this week, I think. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. You don't Because you, you can sound uh, vaguely conspiratorial when you when you say it, but you, you don't usually tend, tend to. But I get, I get what you're saying. It's very much one line. It's one of the only... Um, I hope you can still hear me while you're up. Can yeah, you? I'm just trying to sort out the light. It's a bit better. Yeah, it's one of the one of the really few things that seems to there's just one 
opinion in a good way because you don't nobody wants to be having a go at an old lady who's died but it's it's like everyone's gotten on board with this as as i'm sure we shall as well without being disrespectful does this in a sense unite a country well i mean i think the, you know in a way it did or it does um hmm. but it unites it around a kind of false premise i mean everybody's telling us how wonderful the queen was actually i think the queen did quite a good job uh, hmm. i don't want to say she didn't but you know the queen is fallible like everybody else and uh, yeah. nobody's perfect Human. And we haven't heard anything that she's done wrong. It's been a, a succession of, you know, reports of, of uh, perfection. And that's not accurate for anybody. Uh, but the thing that's really disturbed me in the last couple of days has been the reaction of the police to people making protests. Mm. Now, I happen to think that the guy who shouted out to Andrew, who was walking behind his mother's coffin, uh, Andrew, you're a sick old man. I mean, that was tasteless beyond belief and the guy should be allowed to walk behind his mother's coffin without being interrupted but ultimately it was tasteless but it wasn't illegal um and we are allowed in this country in theory to express views and many people who argue that um you know we don't believe we don't believe support council culture we want people to be able to offend others um they've got to accept that they can be offended too um because that's part of the deal um, so I wouldn't have done what that bloke did. I think it was wrong, but it wasn't a matter for the police to intervene. Speaking as a former Home Office Minister, Crime Prevention Minister, that was not a crime. Even less mm. of a crime was um, the barrister who was going to pull up a piece of paper with not my king on it, which is a perfectly proper comment about democracy, not even about the Queen, actually, about democracy, and was told he would be arrested on a public order offence because it might offend some people. Well, you know... Maybe it would offend some people, but that's tough. And also, what about people who hold up a banner saying, I believe in an unelected monarch? That will offend some people too, but they're not going to be arrested, are they? So I think the police have got some questions to answer. And this is becoming a habit, because I remember when Xi Jinping, the butcher of Beijing, was in the country, people who were standing quietly, lawfully, and the side of the road holding Tibetan flags were all shoved out of the way by the police. I mean, you know, we... we this is, not, this is what happens in Russia and China. It shouldn't be happening over here. So that's uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, you're talking to another free speech advocate, but I would also try and be a devil's advocate uh, so that we can have some form of debate uh, to spruce things up. And, and I believe one of the people... Well, this is actually a funny thing. I think one of the people had who got arrested had a swear word am i right in remembering this someone had a swear word so people were saying it was it was fuck and it was uh that's what it was you're not supposed to say indecent language and that got me thinking well that seems even stranger to me that there are certain words that can get you if you say that word you get taken off the street you know well i know and people say say swear words all the time um as a matter of fact speaking as someone who used to study languages at university and so on what's interesting is the change in social acceptability because when i was when i was 18 20 university the words you absolutely couldn't use were anglo-saxon words for parts of the body and functions which you undertook with parts of the body he said delicately um but but now the words you can't use are words that which are racist they're the ones which are really taboo and yeah. words which are anglo-saxon words about part of the body don't seem to bother people so this has all changed and you know ultimately i have to say that there's not a right or a wrong. There's a, there's a social norm that applies at any one time. Um, and that applies to a whole range of stuff. You know, in Victorian times, it was thought to be, you know, a criminal offence, or it was, if you were if you were gay. Until 1967, you were locked up for that. 
Um, mm. Now you're not, nor were you in kind of Greek times and Roman times. So there's not a right or a wrong on these. It's simply what appears to be a social norm at any particular time. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'll just say that while you were talking, I sniffed up some Sudafed. And I just mentioned that because I thought no one could see me, but Ash has messaged saying no, you know, naughty stuff while you're. Uh, so it was just some nasal spray, which you can see there. Um, just, just in case anyone got the wrong idea. And yeah, I get what you I mean, I would almost go as far as to say there, there's when you say there's no right or wrong that or the right throughout the centuries, over the centuries, has always seemed to have been the, the less or the, the least uh, the least sensorial of the people, the people who allowed those things and saw them yeah. as the fashions of the day. Uh, I think what you say is really, I, I wrote an article for Unheard, I think it was. Oh, no, it wasn't actually. I can't remember who it was for now, about exactly what you're describing, which was the changing of uh, swear words and sacred words over the years, yeah. which has changed from religion, so hell and heck, to the body, well, fucking shit, and God, no identity. Call mm. blind me, which was God blind me, which was a terrible thing to say in the kind of 14th century or something. Yeah. You know, that was a that was a terrible thing to say. Now it's that was nothing. Uh, yeah. talking about your comments here, Jake saying freedom of speech is not absolute. That's right, it isn't absolute. Uh, it's not absolute if you incite hatred, for example, which you shouldn't be allowed to do. It's not absolute if you encourage others to attack somebody else. So there are legitimate limits to freedom of speech, mm. but you know saying that we should be a democracy and not have an elected monarch is not infringing, in my view, those rights. And uh, your other guy or woman, I don't know who it is, underneath, VBUK, absolutely right. I mean, actually what happened there was that when somebody, um, I think it was a guy with a, with a shouting at Andrew, was, was um, then restrained or attacked by the crowd. So the offence, if there wasn't an offence being committed there, was not him shouting out, it was a crowd attacking him. So in a sense, if the police are going to play absolutely down the line, they should have dealt with the crowd, not with him. It's also it's an extraordinary thing to do to to shout something like that when, as you say, when someone's following their mother's coffin. Um, and I suppose there are only allegations at this point, aren't they? But what, given what he did, I suppose a lot of us will have little sympathy. Well, I mean, clearly Andrew is um, persona non grata, and, and Andrew deserves most of what he gets. But, you know, even Andrew is entitled to walk behind his mother's coffin without being shouted at, in my view. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there are any limits to that. If there's anybody who you'd say, no, I'm going to shout at them regardless. It's, it was a chance for somebody in the public to say something to him because they wouldn't usually see him. But, yeah, I agree. It's not really on to be shouting anything at a, like a funeral like that. It's not really on, is it? Oh, I don't know. Tell me your thoughts on, on her passing aside from that. I mean, she was 96 years old. What, what happens now? What, what's what's going on? Well, what happens now is it's been choreographed for years and it's all been mapped out as to what Prince Charles or King Charles was going to do as and when the Queen died. Uh, and that's now being followed through. Uh, it's it's being followed through to allow genuine expression of sympathy for the Queen, but it's also a way, so they'll never admit, they'll never say this, but it's surreptitiously a way of trying to shore up support for the monarchy because this is a dangerous point for the monarchy because... You know, what's happened in recent years has largely been driven by the Queen. The popularity of the monarchy has been held together by the Queen, uh, not by the monarchy per se. And if you look at what Charles has been doing, who, by the way, just, just to remind your listeners and viewers, is still subject to a live criminal investigation by the Metropolitan Police as a consequence of my complaint. Um, he is embroiled in that complaint for the allegation that uh, uh, honours were sold in return well, in return for money for his good causes. 
contrary to the terms of the honours brackets um, uh, offences act, whatever it was called now, uh, in 1925. That was a matter I reported to the Metropolitan Police. So it was clear, in my view, quite primary facie evidence an offence had been committed. The police looted it and they came back and said, yes, we're investigating it as a criminal matter. And I asked them a month ago, actually, where we were with it, and they confirmed they were still investigating it. It's a live case. So this is the first example I think we have where a monarch is embroiled in a criminal investigation for the Metropolitan Police. So Charles comes to the throne with baggage. So this week has been about not just about um, respecting the Queen, but it's also been about assuring up support for the monarchy because support for the monarchy is not the same as support for the Queen. It really isn't. Uh, and if Charles thinks it is, he's mistaken badly. So he has come to the throne with a lot of baggage. She didn't. I mean, she was quite young. It was pre-social media days, pre-television almost. Nobody knew who she was when she came to the throne. She was an unknown quantity. And therefore, it was, it was possible for her, she did it quite well, possible for her to maintain this image of complete neutrality, as far as the public's concerned, for her reign. Charles comes with a whole lot of baggage. We know he's in favour of homeopathy. We know he's in favour of fox hunting. Uh, we know he's in favour of not cutting defence spending, you know, et cetera, et cetera. His views on architecture are well known as is his views on climate change, uh, which he undermines, by the way, of course, by flying in private jets over wearing helicopters. But so he comes with baggage. And he also comes, of course, with the baggage in a more tabloid sense, uh, which people haven't forgotten about, which is uh, where he treated Diana. And that's not that's still in the public memory. So he's got a job to do to um, to make sure that he is successful in the public's mind as a monarch. So in my view, you won't take advice from me, though you ought to, because the advice I'm going to give now is actually in his interest. He needs to reform the monarchy quite soon and quite drastically to make it fit for the 21st century. If he doesn't, mm. he's running into trouble. A couple of things here. Ray J says, don't you think that case, your case against him, will disappear now, though? Which I was going to say to you, don't hold your breath. <laughs> it's the king. It's just not going to happen, is it? It will just, that will disappear. Well, uh, yeah. you know, the law is the law. And... Uh, uh, what what might happen is that, um, uh, of course, Charles Canaris King cannot be prosecuted uh, personally. He could have been as Prince of Wales. He can't be now because all cases in the legal system are taken by the king or the queen, as it was. If they're all Regina versus something or other, that's what the cases are. Um, and therefore, the monarch is literally above the law. This is a nonsense, by the way. It doesn't apply in other countries. We saw, for example, the king of Spain subject to allegations about um, embezzlement and so on. Nobody, the, the king cannot be prosecuted in this country because the law is held by the king. So when the queen was found not to be driving with a seatbelt on, she, she couldn't be prosecuted for it. Uh, she wow. was exempt from that. What can happen, of course, is that um, Charles's flunky, Michael Fawcett, who actually wrote the letter, could be prosecuted. And Michael Fawcett tends to act as Charles's right-hand man. He's already had to resign twice or was it three times um and then when no one's looking he's brought back in by the back door that's what happened um so he may yet again take fall on his sword but judging on past experience it's one of those trick swords you find on the stage where the blade disappears into the handle and he's actually all right and he carries on afterwards my word yeah well i'd almost rather nothing happened then because she's gotten away with it i can't believe that they can't be prosecuted for anything that's insane no. and i, I guess this is, this, must is, be thinking... this is the medieval imperial monarchy we still have unlike every it's... other monarchy in europe it does seem insane and yeah but, i mean prince andrew would be wishing 
that he could somehow take the throne because he could get away with a lot more stuff then. I mean, that would be insane. What if he was the king then? He could just get go around doing whatever he wants. Yes, I mean the king. The king can do what he wants. So the king, the king can, could murder someone tomorrow and he couldn't be prosecuted for it. That's he could insane. murder someone in cold blood in Whitehall and not be prosecuted for it. I can't believe that. Jake says that kings called Charles have an unfortunate history because one yes. of them was in a tree, was it hiding in a tree, and then it was a monarchy <laughs> in the civil war. What was that? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure with the tree, but I think that's right from vague memory. But Charles I was tried. Uh, in Westminster Hall, by the way, where the Queen's now lying in state. Charles I was tried there in 1649 and subsequently executed. And then we had the period of Republic with Oliver Cromwell until the Restoration in 1660. So, and Charles II wasn't exactly a great success either. So we've had two Charleses uh, who have not been a great success. And I did, I did actually find it quite surprising that the Queen called her child Charles, given the history of the name and and the royal connections with it. But anyway, he is called that. It was also why I thought that Charles might have uh, chosen the name George VII. There's no requirement for the king to be known by his first name. Uh, the first thing that happens when the monarch dies is to say to the heir, how do you want to be known? And they asked Elizabeth this in 1952, and she said, well, Elizabeth, of course, that was her reaction, normal reaction, you might think. Um, however, go back to uh, the previous ones. George VI was not George. Uh, Edward VIII was not Edward. George V was not George. Uh, Victoria was not Victoria. You know, they all they all took middle names or or whatever to to for their own particular reasons. So Elizabeth's the only one that's actually used her first name. So we thought that Charles might go to George VII, but he because he mentioned that in sort of passing about two thousand and five that that oh. was on his mind, and we thought that I thought that might happen. Uh, interestingly. When Liz Trust came out and made her statement on the steps of Downing Street, immediately after the Queen died, she then was the first person to say Charles III. Now, had it been any other Prime Minister at any other time, I would have assumed automatically that had been properly cleared by the palace. But there's just a nagging doubt in my mind that she was just there for a day or so beforehand. She was making the speech up on her own behalf. And I kind of wonder whether she almost bounced him into that, into that uh, title. My word, it's it's all so weird. I, there's so much I don't know. I'm pleased you know about it. Obviously, it's your 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 thing, isn't it? You know, you know. Otherwise, why why would we be talking about it? I suppose. Um, I've got a question from Jake Forder. Norman, what could a reformed monarchy look like? It could look like one you find the the model is to be found in Spain or or in or in not so much Spain. That's a bit corrupt at the moment. But in the Benelux countries or the Scandinavian countries. It's one where in Norway, for example, the King of Norway has to take an oath to the Constitution to uphold democracy before he can take his throne. In this country, we take an oath to the unelected. They, in Norway, they take an oath to the elected. Seems to be a much better way around. If you look at the cost of the monarchy, uh, our monarchy costs, well, I'll come back to ours in a moment. The Swedish monarchy costs £5 million a year. The, the uh, Belgian monarchy costs £10 million a year. Ours cost... Uh, £83 million last year, plus £200 million for security, plus all the tax exemptions they have, such as inheritance tax. There'll be no inheritance tax paid on the Queen's private private possessions. Hands of Charles, no inheritance tax paid on that at all. Uh, plus the exemption from tax, corporation tax for the Duchy of Cornwall, and so it goes on. You know, we, have, we pay an absolute fortune for our monarchy in this country compared to other countries. So a reform monarchy gets rid of the 
excess number of people in the balcony. I'm going to flash my book here. 44 of them on the balcony there. Who are these people? Why are we paying for them? 44 of them on the balcony. Gets that cut down. It gets the finances in some sort of order. So we eliminate all the special treatment, all the special tax exemptions, and we pay a lot less uh, than the 83 million pound we're paying at the moment. Plus, what we do then is to make sure that the people who do royal duties are, as they are in other countries, the king, the heir to the throne, and his or her children. And that's it. And the rest of them can all go out and get jobs. And we also change all of other stuff too. We change the formality, the, the kind of staid, statuesque type formality we've still got here. Do you know, I was speaking to, I went to, I went to an event in Stockholm when I was a minister. I forgot what the event was now. And I got chatting to this woman in the corner on this reception. And there was about five or ten minutes in the conversation that I found out she was a Swedish princess. Now, you can't imagine that kind of informality with the British royal family. You know, what everybody does here, they all line up. And, you know, the, the king or queen goes in front of them like some sort of generation game. But the fans or the, the, the people appear to love them. So, you know, give the people well, what the they people, want. Well, the people, some people do love them. I mean, and they don't necessarily love Andrew. They don't necessarily love Harry and Meghan. They don't necessarily no. love Charles. You know, they love the queen, I think, most people. And they like the idea of, you know, gold coaches coming down the road and all that kind of stuff. Well, we can still have that if you want gold coaches coming down the road. That's okay. Um, at any one time, there's between about 20% and 40% of people who are Republican in this country, particularly young people, who is majority. Hmm. So, um, you know, we don't hear those people. You listened to the BBC coverage this last week. You've not heard, I suggest to you, any voice, not simply a Republican voice, but not even a voice criticising the royal family. I've just been on Times Radio tonight doing a piece on royal finances. Um, I think I'm the first person to, good, good for them, they had me on, the first person to say anything at all critical of the royal family this week. And we've had, we've had a bad of the, stuff which is so positive. Maybe they think it's not the time after a death, although I suppose you could also argue it's exactly the time. Well, I mean, it's not the time to criticise the Queen um, sure. and, to, and to in any way find fault with her. I think, and that would be dis disrespectful, and I haven't done that. But you know, they're asking; they're now beginning to ask, "What's the what's the next reign looking like? How is Charles going to behave as king?" Those conversations are now happening on the media a bit. The difference is that most people, because of this week, are being hugely supportive and totally uncritical of Charles, and that's not the appropriate course. Apart from anything else, we're in a democracy. Why don't we have a proper debate about these things? Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I think we do need to be able to talk about these things without all the, the people assume you're thinking other things or bad things about the Queen or whatever it, it might be. I would say about Charles as King, there is that thing that sort of happens when somebody takes on a new position or whatever. You do start to see them differently because he was the butt of the joke for decades, the joke being, you know, Ma, Mama, will you abdicate or whatever? Uh, you know, and she's never going to and she'll outlive him. And that was sort of the, the joke. But now he's looks quite regal and he's got a, a you know he's the king he's literally the king which is mad uh that anyone is a king but do you know what i mean i think i wonder if the public reaction to him might 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 change a little bit well it might do i mean of course he looks regal he's got he's got everything around him he's that regal. says <laughs> i am that i am the king that's everything around yeah. him all the people around him uh you yeah. know reinforcing that view of course it does well, we have to, but you know, we we'll have to find out whether he plays it properly or whether he doesn't. I mean, one of the things people have picked up on, and I was there, by the way, Andrew, because I'm a privy councillor, uh, was at the 
his declaration. And his declaration was um, actually the comments he made, the speech he made was fine, I thought, and quite well judged. But, you know, when he wanted to get his pen out, he got some flunky to move the ink wheel about six inches. And it was just that kind of thing, just, you know, what century is he in? You know, that was a terrible bit of PR. It's outrageous, especially, you know, and that's when he knows the world's cameras are on him. What's he like exactly. when they're not? Yeah. I'd be so embarrassed to behave like that, although that is what you expect from a king. This, I think we discussed this before. They are in a tricky position because they want to continue existing and to have the popularity and the support of the people, which I think they have to have, you know, for if it goes on yes. long enough that they don't have it. Um, and part of what they're doing is pandering, I think, Meghan and, and Harry in particular, but a lot of the talk, pandering to a certain kind of young, progressive person I, I dare say quite woke some of that stuff um the problem is if they go too far that way well if you're quite woke and sort of wanting equality and equity and you're really into that stuff then you're not going to support a monarchy so it's almost like they're making themselves irrelevant by trying to pander to that well i suppose that's an interesting thought actually that they destroy their own base um mm. you know the, the debate in 1969 when the Queen and the royal family decided to, have to create this film, Royal Family, which had not been seen on the BBC very much. I, don't, I think the royal family doesn't want it seen anymore. I don't quite know. But anyway, this yeah. film was designed to make the royal family seem more accessible, which it did, except it also made them seem more human, and therefore the mystique had gone. Right. So you know, the royal family does best, in a way, when it, it is seen to be something distant and mystical yes. and that kind of thing. But equally, if they're seen as mystical, not touch with normal people so it's a difficult balancing act for them to try and square that circle if you like to to do that but the exactly it's exactly you know, the same thing isn't it you're, you're right it's the same thing of they're pandering you know to be popular and to say like hey we're just like you guys but then if you're just like us then why are we what what are you're nothing yeah. you're just us then you know yeah <laughs> there's a tricky position they're in i think it's just because i think they must know they're in an outdated system as you say they're costing a lot more money than than similar monarchies around the world i mean is it good to have a monarchy as well i remember seeing uh, stephen fry made a video about you know the the countries with monarchies tend to be happier there's some sort of statistic about that and also i guess that leads us to having a prime minister rather than a president which you could say is less of a cult well, of a person uh, there's two separate issues andrew i mean first of all i absolutely agree there should be def there should be a split between the ceremonial head of a country and the political head it doesn't work in my view in america very well for that it doesn't work in france i actually think macron's quite good but it doesn't work when he's when he's got to do the formal stuff and the political stuff it should be a separate role should it be a monarchy well i mean it can be or it can be with that one i mean mary robinson in ireland was a brilliant president for example so we don't have to have a monarchy we start from where we are uh, we've got a monarchy now and you know, I can live with it if it becomes reformed, if it becomes a 21st century monarchy, then I can live with that. But we're miles from that. We're absolutely miles from that at the moment. Yeah, it's it's it is all a bit off. Uh got a question just I will get to Matthew Steeples, but I want to save the the sort of the dodgy stuff for the end. Uh Ray J's asking, Harry and Andrew have been stripped of their military patronages, correct? Oh. Is that why neither wore uniforms today and didn't salute at the Cenotaph? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Um, and Harry and Meghan, let me be quite clear. If they want to leave the royal family, they should be entitled to leave the royal family. It's not a prison. They can walk away from it. That should be anyone's entitlement. Uh, it's not a life sentence. Um, however, you're either in or you're out. And what you can't do is 
uh, is abandon all your responsibilities and and the, the the stuff that goes with being a member of family and keep all your hrh titles and all your planes and your private houses and all that supplied by the taxpayer you're either in or you're out and at the moment they're straddling they've still got frogmore cottage by the way which we're paying for and they've still got security around frogmore cottage 24 hours a day which we're paying for even though they're in america they still get if they're coming back here on on their royal duties like this classes royal duty you get the transport paid so you know i you know I don't, i'm happy for them to go and do something different they want to do that but you know you're going to leave the royal family if you're going to do that you can't be halfway across you know one in half one leg in one leg out yeah or you can but then you're going to get criticized and i don't think yeah. they like that i mean and that's what's happening at the moment and i listened to her first podcast episode and it, it wound me up and i don't you know I, I i'd like to think of myself as a free thinker and i know people everyone thinks of themselves that way but you know everyone was jumping on the hating megan bandwagon and i wanted to be like oh come on you're wasting your breath but I, the more i thought about it the more i looked into it, it really winds me up because she talks the whole way through her her podcast the whole time about how she's ambitious and people hate her because of her ambition but she never states what that ambition is now we know it's you married a prince but she also says she's a feminist now i'm not going to tell people i'm a man i don't want to tell people what feminism is but i don't think that's the ideal she's gonna you know she's not trying to say people should try and marry a prince she was holding herself up on the same level as serena williams in that podcast one of the most incredible people on the planet serena williams who's worked incredibly hard she married a prince now okay married nothing wrong with that but i feel the same way as you well if you're gonna do that and you call that your ambition then do the job do the work because you, if yeah. you're not going to do it, don't take all the money and all the success. Because her podcast, and I am bitter about this, her, her first episode got more listens than probably all of my episodes together times 100, you know? And that's because she married a prince. And she's that's one well, of the Well, I know, I know. But don't feel too bad, Andrew. I mean, I, I've, 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 got, I've got three music shows a week I do on my local FM station. And one of them is called The Hidden 60s. And I play some fantastic music from the 1960s that wasn't a hit. And look at some of the stuff I'm on, which is crap. You think, well, why did I get there? And some of the other stuff didn't. That's just the way life is, I'm afraid. And Megan, of course, also compared herself, sort of compared herself to Nelson Mandela. Yes. Which was kind of very crass, really. I mean, there's no comparison whatsoever. And that was just you know, leaving herself open to ridicule, to be honest with you. Yeah. And he just seems a bit of, um, can I say this, just seems a bit of a dope. Doesn't seem well, he's, 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 I mean, there's a very old phrase, which is a bit sexist, but she's wearing the trousers is the old phrase that comes to mind. Well, you know, she's she's running the relationship, not him. Yeah. Well, no, it's it does seem to be the case, and again, like I think you'd agree, like all all of that's fine. But if you're going to marry into the family, if you're going to take all the money, you're going to moan all the time that you don't have security and that people are not, you know, and you're going to play off of the fame you got from marrying. And people, I've said this before, and people start commenting, going, "No, she was in, she was a very famous actress before." And it's like, come on, I don't know any of the names of the other people from that Suits program. I never even watched it. No, no, I don't know either. Look, I mean, Harry's done some good stuff. Um, uh, his Invictus Games and all that, I think it's very laudable. Mm. She's done some good stuff. I mean, she got some advert changed when it was um, showing women washing That's up right. or something. I remember exactly that. When she was a child. So they've done good stuff. I, and, and they are more progressive in some ways. I mean, they, again, like Charles, they undermine themselves by using private jets all the time to lecture about climate change and having huge cars in, in, in their own backyard. It doesn't help that very much. They're probably the top one percent of polluters in the world as a consequence of their lifestyle. So they're hardly in a position to lecture. So they, they've got a blind spot about that, same as same as Charles has actually, about behaving in that way. But you know, uh, 
let, let them get on with it. But they've got to just be, be aware that uh, they are going to be criticised for for that sort of thing, and they leave themselves, leave themselves open to it. Yeah. Why, I don't think, sorry, the other thing Andrew didn't say was it? I don't understand why Andrew goes on, um, why um, Harry got on about security in this country feeling unsafe. I mean, to be honest with you, the, the, if you actually feel unsafe, I feel unsafe in the US, where you know gun crime is is out of control, and people are shot every day over there. You know, that's you know that's well, that's where that's where you're going to get shot, not in the UK. So why Harry worries about being over here, not over there? I just don't understand. Hmm. Well, yeah, I get. Well, wouldn't he? Isn't he just worried in both places, or he's more concerned about? No, he's more concerned speaking. about over here. I don't know. I don't know why. I wonder what that's about. I, I don't know. In fact, I was going to say we were out of time, but I've I've got to ask a question from Matthew Steeples because he's asked it about fifty-eight times. Which uh, do you think Megan was drunk on her or drugged up on her walkabout? Do you know what that's referring to? Uh, not particularly, but I mean, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's highly unlikely. It's it's much more likely she was feeling deeply uncomfortable about the situation she was in. That's I'm sure that's probably the explanation sure. for it. And I, I do want to backtrack a little bit on having to go too much about Megan because she's a person, she's a human being, and she's she. You're right, she has done some good. She's she's done some good stuff, and and she probably wants to change the world, you know, as we all do. But I just get wound up sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on again, Norman. Where do you want to send people? Where do I want to send them? Well, I'll send the to... prime minister to uh, Pitcairn Island. Is that is that what you sort of thing you mean? That's exactly what I mean. No, well, you know, where, well, for example, where can they see you, hear your sixties music show? Oh well, that's yeah. I mean, I, I, music is music is so important to me. We never talk about music, but music is so important to me. Uh, music makes a black and white world colour. I spent a lot of time in my life on music. Uh, I, I, one of my previous incarnations, if you like, was to uh, run twenty six music shops when people had music shops in those days, um, back in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, I just I got massive record collection uh, LPs. I'm talking about singles rather than anything else because that's how you should play music. You play it on vinyl, please. You're not on CDs or pop or anything else or download. You play it on vinyl. And um, yeah, my radio shows. I've got three uh, on Sundays. I do an hour called um, Pick Up the Seventies, which is just kind of straight seventies stuff. I've got an hour called Ain't Nothing But the Blues, which speaks for itself. And on Mondays I do Hidden Sixties. Which is um, obscure stuff in the 1960s, like B sides and EP tracks and stuff, which is just, I think, is great. And it's all on Sea Haven FM, which is my local FM station. So I love doing that. Mm. Is that your own station? Well, it's not my station, it's my local station. Mm. It's not my station. Okay. But oh, um, well, yeah, so that's, that's what I do. And of course, I should say that if you're talking about music, I have released three albums um, two with my band, The Reform Club, and uh, one solo album as well. Uh, uh, as a singer songwriter, so yeah, oh. um, check it out on YouTube. The Reform, yeah, how Club. do we do that? What's it? YouTube? We just type in the Reform Club and uh, you'll get something about the Reform Club in London, the building. And if you can bear that, you'll get something about my band. And uh, about, we've got about half a dozen videos up there, okay. I'm checking, so, and of course, the other thing to say, of course, for those who are interested in that, just a quick plug for my book, as always. And what do you do? What the Royal Family don't want you to know. Which is quite sounds, a lot. Uh, All that lot, they don't want yeah. to know. <laughs> it's a big book. And what do you do? Get hold of that book. Uh, Alt Steeples is kicking off. I only asked each question once, actually, but the hair flicking was 
clearly very curious. Meghan Markle was a disgrace, whereas the new Princess of Wales was dignified. Thank you, Matthew. He's livid. He's sitting there with a glass of whiskey, angry about Meghan. Um, but yeah, thank you, Norman. Have a lovely day. People check out his music, get his book, and uh, good night, everyone. Good I'll just click off here. Unless Sean's is Sean here? No. Cool. It's been lovely, everyone. Um, do check out my podcast, On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Uh, tell Sean you love him. And Matthew says he's not angry. I say cheers to you. Cheers to you, Matthew. Get me a cake next time. None of these drinks. Uh, hope you enjoyed. Oh, no, Sean's here. Good night. Farewell. We'll see you next Wednesday at 5.45. Very good. Point.